Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You may be taking this slogan to heart today. A new year, a new you. It could mean today, for example, on January 1st, you're starting a diet or a new workout, or maybe you're simply vowing to use more sunscreen or to stop drinking. Well, these New Year's resolutions to feel and look better remind me of a story I reported earlier this year about plastic surgery in Brazil. Brazil is now the world leader in plastic surgery. It has surpassed the United States in the number of procedures, even though the U.S. has more people with more disposable income than Brazil. As I found out, many Brazilian women see surgical beautification as a right and not a privilege. And that includes Janetchi and Jacqueline Timal. They are 40-something-year-old sisters, and they have what they call a plastic surgery fund. I'm always saving money. When I see I've gotten enough money for another surgery, I do it. That's Jacqueline. She's had breast implants put in and also a tummy tuck. She's here today to do the famed Brazilian butt lift, which is the same as a boob job, but on your backside. Janetchi has had a tummy tuck too, and she's also doing her breasts. That'll be five surgeries between them when this round is done. They both say this isn't about bankrupting themselves for beauty, but rather the opposite. Jacqueline says she sees the procedures as an investment. I think we invest in beauty because it's very important for women here. You can get a better job because here they want a good appearance. A better marriage because men care about the way you look. Janetchi and Jacqueline aren't rich, far from it. Even with the surgery fund, they wouldn't be able to afford to pay for all those cosmetic procedures, they say, unless they did it here. Here is the Ivo Pitangui Institute in Rio de Janeiro, named after the famed Brazilian plastic surgeon who is renowned here for saying, the poor have the right to be beautiful too. The Institute's lobby is packed as attendants call out the names of women and a few men who are waiting to be evaluated for cosmetic surgeries. This is a charity and a teaching hospital, and the surgeries given are either free of charge or heavily subsidized. The sisters tell me the price they are paying for the butt lift, for example, is 3,800 reais, about $1,600. At a private hospital, it could run over three times that. We meet with Francesco Mazzarone, who now heads the institute. I ask him why it's important to provide cosmetic surgeries to the disadvantaged. This is about equality, which is the philosophy Pitangui created, equal rights to everyone. The patients come here to get back something they lost in time. We give to them the right to dream. Why should only the wealthy have access to something that will increase self-esteem, he asks. What we do here is altruism, he says. So here are the numbers. Last year, according to the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, there were one and a half million cosmetic surgeries carried out in Brazil. That's 13% of all elective plastic surgeries done all over the world. 
Part of the boom can be explained by women's increasing financial power. In the last 10 years, Brazil has grown economically. Salaries have gone up, as has disposable income. Women, like the Tamal sisters, have overwhelmingly chosen to use that money on their appearance. That's the thing. While in the U.S., people may hide that they've had plastic surgery like it's something shameful, here they flaunt it. The attitude is that having work done shows you care about yourself, and it's a status symbol. But the women we speak with also acknowledge there is a lot of pressure in Brazil to conform to a physical ideal. Some here, though, balk at the idea that happiness can be achieved at the end of a scalpel. They say the image people chase is being defined by marketers. And in Brazil, it has a racial component. Marcelo Silva Ramos is an anthropologist and social scientist. Brazil imported more slaves, some 4 million, than anywhere else in the world. Today, it's primarily a mixed-race country, but you wouldn't know it if you look on TV and in the magazines here, he says. Ou seja, se você for pegar o modelo de corpo tradicional de uma brasileira... If you look at the traditional body type of a Brazilian, you would see a woman with dark skin curly hair, small breasts, and a larger bottom, a body that is very different from the body marketed as desirable, which is a skinnier, taller, blonde with straight hair, with bigger breasts and with not many curves. That is meant that today people who don't look the right way, and by this he means the white way, are often excluded. In our culture, the models that have value in our culture, the view is women who look acceptable get money, social mobility, power. Take, for example, the crazy popular annual contest Miss Boom Boom. All of this year's contestants are lighter skinned. I'm at a gym in Sao Paulo, and in front of me are several scantily clad women in full makeup, uh, many photographers. This is a press event. And they're working what you and I would call politely our glutes, but what is called in Brazil, boom boom. The women here are contestants in the yearly Miss Boom Boom contest, which, as you can probably figure out, crowns Brazil's best butt. I'm Claudia Aling. That's the 22-year-old frontrunner who looks like actress Megan Fox. I mean, almost exactly right down to the blue contact lenses she has over her naturally brown eyes. So tell me, why are you doing the Miss Boom Boom contest? Because the contest is famous around the world, and I want to be recognized in, around the world and become famous too. <laughs> She says the contest is a way for her to become a TV presenter or an actress. The rules of the contest allow for plastic surgery anywhere but on the backside. She openly admits she's had work done. Uh, because it was like uh, moda. Fashion. Fashion. Was like, uh, was like everybody is doing and I don't. Previous Miss Boom Boom contestants have indeed gone on to arguably bigger and better things. One became a TV presenter, others have become actors, professional dancers on TV. But for most of the women I speak with, their dreams, the ones the Pitangi Institute say they are giving them the right to, are much smaller. We meet Maria da Gloria de Souza on a beach in Rio on a chilly, blustery day. She's unemployed, but has had six surgeries at the Pitangi Institute and speaks about her procedures with that characteristic Brazilian humor and openness. 
para dizer, eu sou praticamente quase uma androide. I'm almost an android, she tells me. I've done my breasts three times. I didn't stop there. I did a tummy tuck, and then I did lipo, and lastly, I did my bottom, she says proudly. She says she spent the equivalent of the cost of three cars on her operations. I'm much happier, there's no doubt about it, she tells me. My bottom will never sag, my breasts will never sag, they will always be there hard. It's very good to look into the mirror and feel fine, she says. She waves goodbye and, smiling, sachets down the beach, and nothing jiggles. I reported that story back in October for our series, The Changing Lives of Women. Whatever your aspirations for the new year, thank you for joining us today. Happy New Year. Franz Stangl was a career policeman. He was an Austrian. And with the arrival of Nazism, he joined the Nazi party and he also became a member of the SS. Then he worked his way up the Nazi party ranks. Stengel was drafted into a special program in Austria at Hartheim Castle. He takes part in the uh, T4 program. People who are crippled or mentally handicapped are gassed to death on the grounds that they are untermenschen, they are inferior beings. It was a training school for mass murderers. They were carefully groomed. Can you stand there? and watch people being injected? Can you stand there and watch 150 people being gassed in the chamber? He enjoyed murdering people in hard time. He was a passionate believer in Hitler's theories of race and the superiority of the Aryans. Himmler, who was the head of the SS, personally selected Franz Stengel to supervise this place. He appointed him to that post because he knew that he could handle it. By the time they finished, they had murdered around 30,000 people. After the war, Franz Stangl found refuge in Brazil. He built a comfortable life for his wife and three daughters. There's a big German community in Sao Paulo. It's like home from home. He's happy. They got their Wurst and their Wiener Schnitzels. They used to celebrate Hitler's birthday, sing uh, old German drinking songs. They were good neighbors, productive members of the community. He worked in a car factory. He started to make quite a bit of money. The war criminal is eventually able to move his family into a spacious new home. And he finally thinks, that's it. I put the old world, all my crimes behind me. I'll be forgotten. No sin south of the equator apparently applies to Nazis as well. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, 
April 6th, 2023, so I have been told the Catherine Massey Book Club 12th installment, Mario Filo's The Black Man in Brazilian Soccer. So we're picking up chapter five, moving towards the conclusion of the book. We heard two audio segments at the beginning. Uh, The first, just a spectacular report from NPR, about eight minutes long, detailing Brazil, the plastic surgery capital of the world. Now, the only reason that I played that segment at the beginning is because just last week we heard the amazing segment from the book where they detailed how the mulatto non-white soccer player uh, Zeze Preocopio, I hope I'm saying it correctly, uh, but that he got plastic surgery because he didn't like his nose. And I was stunned because this was in the 1940s. And I said, what, you know, what type of everything, what type of anesthesia did they have at that time? Uh, Everything, you know, (laughs) what is the procedure like? People die in plastic surgery. People die from those Brazilian butt lifts right now, 21st century. So much less you digging into my nasal cavity in the earlier portion of the 20th century. Like, wow. That just, I was stunned about that last week and all in the name of white supremacy, which came out directly in that NPR segment, uh, the beauty, white beauty standards, Pam's book, the beauty con game worldwide. I even was gobsmacked. You mean to tell me you have subsidized Brazilian butt lift surgery in Brazil you don't want the so-called disadvantage to miss out on the Brazilian butt lift do they have like subsidized food programs subsidized grocery stores like I mean you, you gotta tell me something all the reports that we have about poor people and the favelas and everything else like we have subsidized plastic surgery so that you can meet or try your best to get closer to the white beauty aesthetic as opposed to maybe we should get you out of the favela so we don't have any more children of god films yes no more street urchins nah just get the brazilian booty lift and you'll be better a little more boom boom in your life that's one of the most disgraceful things i said you put that right next to they said Brazil is a majority mixed race country I think that is a total lie we had Marquise Trevay on the program he said most of the people in Brazil will retract I will retract that was on Tony Brown's journal they had a victim speaking and he said most of the people here they would look like people that would be classified as black crystal black maybe a little bit more cinnamon wherever but most of the people the biggest group looks like these folks would be classified as black and they said as much when they said the typical person shorter hair darker skin curly kinky hair 
lot of boom boom flat chest that's what they said got it got it got it the second audio segment that we heard also because of what we read last week in chapter 5 from the what is it I guess it's a documentary series the Nazi hunters I don't know how many seasons there are but there are many episodes and the episode that we heard Gustav Wagner Franz Strongel these are two white supremacists they worked with Hitler concentration camps all of that Uh, Franz Strongel was nicknamed white death at the concentration camps uh, and was known for going around in pressed freshly pressed pants and a white coat on his way to kill non-white people after the war is over He's a war criminal. He's going to be tried. Some of these, a very small number of these folks are executed. He's, forget that. He absconds to Brazil. That's what you heard in the audio uh, segment. I could have added on. They had so much about half of that episode is about these Nazis and they have a whole colony of Nazi colony in Brazil. They have Nazi uh, paraphernalia, Nazi China and Nazi pictures. They have Nazi parties. <laughs> like it is amazing. They have whole books about this. <sighs> I could have played so much more. There was so much material. I had a sound clip of Dr. Welsing talking about Brazil that I've been waiting now for two weeks to play that I didn't even include because of the Brazilian booty lift and Nazi colonies in Brazil still learning we will get started Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy Negroes with kinky hair and Brazilian soccer audio segment one the bombardment on the Ferrer Street field was nothing in comparison to that which greeted the entry of the Carioca and Paulista sides into the second leg game of a best of three series to decide the Brazilian Championship of 1943. In Sao Januario, in a phase of still clear superiority to Carioca soccer, Sao Paulo boasted the title of two-time champion of Brazil. Now they were coming to Rio to try for three, with Leonidas da Silva wearing the jersey with thin vertical stripes in black, white, and red the colors of the Sao Paulo state flag. Vargas Neto, president of the Metropolitan Federation of Soccer, went so far as to create a Gestapo to monitor the slightest movements of the players who were going to defend Rio. He did not even make a secret of the name of the new organ of the Federation. It really was Gestapo. Not, of course, in the official documents, but when he referred to Luis Vinhais, the boss, to Camaro, to Jose Tricolor himself, he would say affectionately, my Gestapo. He maintained the worst suspicions about some of the players on the Carioca side, which had lost the last Brazilian championship to Sao Paulo. Even of Domingos Daguia, who supposedly gave a goal to Milani, clearing a ball with a pass that fell, mathematically, at the feet of the Paulista ace. 
but above all of Jurandir, a Paulista, who was guarding the Carioca goal and had gone so far as to let go of a ball after defending it, as if throwing it into his own net. Thus, the idea of a Gestapo that followed in the steps of the Carioca players had made reports like those of an espionage service. It was still the era of the new state, but Brazil had entered the war on the side of the Axis powers. The name Gestapo was chosen to frighten, and it frightened truly more than any other. The Gestapo surprised Domingos Taguia, drunk in a dance hall, three steps from the Siniac building where the Federation was located. He had come from Bangu and it was raining. He had entered the National Bar in the Cruciero Galleria and with half a cup of beer got high. When he came to himself, he was in the hands of Vinhais and Camarao. The side needed him. For this reason, he was pardoned after giving the greatest demonstrations of repentance, something he did not like to do because of a sense of dignity of a master. It was good that that happened, that the Gestapo really worked because there was nothing else. The atmosphere was one of war. The newspapers of Rio and Sao Paulo treated each other as if they belonged to belligerent powers. The Paulista Federation knew there was going to be a bombardment in Sao Januariao. They prepared themselves to face it, not like Sao Cristobal, whose error was widely publicized, plugging the ears of its players and having them wait in the changing room while imagining the end of the world. The Sao Paulo side would enter with the Carioca one. Thus, the bombardment that greeted the entry of the Cariocas, energizing them, would also serve as a greeting to the Paulistas. And it was enough for the first Carioca player to be spotted at the door of the changing room for the first Paulista player to appear on the other side. The signal was given, and from every corner of Sao Januario, rockets started to whistle. Behind the goal from the pole, they were connected with wicks, one to the other, mountains of bundles of rockets, the biggest from the factories of June Festival fireworks, good for salvos of 21 shots, like a cannon. It was as if Sao Januario were being bombarded, reduced to ashes. The impression one had was that not a stone would be left standing. No one saw anything besides the flashes of the bombs, the sky illuminated by lightning that cut it into two. And the earth shook, seemingly shaken by an earthquake, by various earthquakes because it was a never-ending tremor. Vaguely, there appeared in the field covered by a London fog, shapes moving, running, as if fleeing from a cataclysm. As long as they had not released the last rocket and the last firework or cherry bomb had not exploded, the nightmare continued, except that for the Carioca ears, it was music from the heavens. For the Paulista ears, 
It was another thing altogether. Finally, there was silence. Five minutes after the game had started, the fog still covered Sao Januario. The players were seen as shadows, pursuing a ball invisible to the eyes of the fans. The mist that was falling slowed the rising of the bomb's smoke. Little by little, the floodlights of Sao Januario turned the lawn green again, and green humid and alive, drawing from its scintillations of dew. It was celebrated. It was the celebrated game of enough. Never was a group of fans crueler, nor did any cause such damage as the Carioca one that night. There was in the grandstand a drum troop in the middle of an organized fan group that was signing an Ari Barossa march, written especially for the occasion, like a war hymn, happy, bouncy, a la madelon of soccer. Against the backdrop of the song, the Carioca players played dancing. It is said that Servilio, a slender black man, who was one of Sao Paulo's attacking players next to Leonidas, stopped to watch, stunned, the intrigues of Lele and Tim, ping-ponging the ball back and forth. Look how they're playing, Hercules, which earned him harsh words from Leonidas, now a Paulista, instead of standing there like a fool, play like them. When the Carioca scored their six and final goal, winning six to one, the crowd, without prior warning, as if commanded by an inaudible order, interrupted the festivities. Enough! And the dance was over. The Paulistas felt that enough more than they did the six to one. For Antonio Carlos Guimares, president of the Sao Paulo Federation, handpicked to counterbalance as a great friend of Getulinho, the position of Vargas Nieta, beloved nephew of Getulio Vargas, everything was the result of the bombardment, so much so that he demanded a conference in the office of the chief of police, Colonel Nelson de Mello, to demand measures against another bombardment. Ciro Aranja, as president of Vasco, was called. He had to make a promise on his honor that he would not allow a single cherry bomb or rocket or even a simple fountain or more modest sparkler to enter Sao Januario. At the first whistle of a rocket, the Paulista side would leave the field if it had already entered. And so that there would not be the slightest doubt about the position of Sao Paulo and in the serious, emphatic voice of Antonio Carlos Guimaraes, who was practically still a boy, but had the voice of someone speaking in the name of one power to another one, like a plenipotentiary authority, the president of the Sao Paulo Soccer Federation closed the conference with an ultimatum. If they set off a single rocket in Sao Januario, 
there will be a very serious problem between Sao Paulo and Brazil. Colonel Nelson de Mello almost exploded. The blood rose to his head and a lump formed in his throat. In good faith, one cannot say that Antonio Carlos Guimarães had really wanted to say Sao Paulo and Brazil. Paulistos even made a point of being or showing themselves to be more Brazilian than the Cariocas. Sao Paulo was the locomotive of Brazil, dragging along all the other states, but the government was in Rio. And it was the government that Antonio Carlos Guimarães was threatening with a problem from Sao Paulo, or at least the chief of police. What is certain is that Colonel Nelson de Mello, who wanted to see the game, who didn't, had to swallow this as chief of police and as an official of the army. It was war. If Flamengo and Vasco, Fluminense and Botafogo were facing each other as almost foreign powers, as enemies, imagine Sao Paulo and Rio. And in the office of Relesiao Street, after a coffee was sent for to ease the tension, an agreement was established so that there would be a game. Ciro Aranja gave his word on his honor, which he carried out. No one would set off a rocket in Sao Januario. As there was no time for a public announcement, there were those who protected themselves with an umbrella, despite the sunny day turning into a clear night. As in the case of Djalma Sampao, when the Cariocas entered the field, he opened his umbrella and remained hidden beneath it, waiting for the bombardment that would wipe out several blocks. Without a bomb, the Cariocas won the classic final, but Batatais, the goalkeeper of Rio, was accused when the game was over of being a traitor. It was that he had only let in one ball shot by Leonidas da Silva, born in Rio, but already a Paulista of 400 years. Batatais responded that he was Brazilian, which in that moment made no sense. It was not a question of Brazil. It was one of Rio and Sao Paulo, of the war of the Brazilian championship. What Batatais could have responded is that Leonidas had been born in Rio, that Zeze Procopio and Noronha had gone from Rio to Sao Paulo, and that he, being in Rio, in the goalie uniform of Rio, had become Carioca. That it was Rio, he had to die for. This gives an idea of the pressure exerted in those war years on soccer players, white, mulatto, or black, of the real stress that the soccer player was submitted to like a soldier in war. There was the war of championship, roughly comparable to the world war. And there was the private war of club against club with a date scheduled for each battle. When a Flamengo and Vasco matchup was approaching from Monday on, no one spoke of anything else. Whoever was with Flamengo would be trying to demoralize the Vasco players, to weaken the self-confidence, to expose them to ridicule. 
Whoever was with Vasco would try to do the same with respect to the Flamingo players. It was a war of nerves, a psychological war. One example was the campaign to end, once and for all, one of the best attacking trios of all eras of Brazilian soccer, Lele, Isaias, and Jair. Lele, a stocky mulatto who passed as white, had thick legs and a shot that perhaps had no equal. Isaias, a slim black man, was slippery and fast, a sprinter with quick acceleration. Lively and malicious, he was capable of deciding a game with a fantastic goal at will. Jair, a mulatto with bad hair, compared to that of Isaias, was almost short. He was thin and had a lady's foot, but he was apt to crush the ball with his shot. He was one-footed, favoring the left, but with that foot he gave passes with millimetric exactitude and made goals from 40 meters out. With Lele, Isaias, and Jair were on Madeira. While they were on Madeira, they were indeed spoken of, but no one would exaggerate in their praise, and it was even insinuated to devalue them that they had been bought. All it took was for them to go to Vasco for a campaign of demoralization to be carried out against them. They only withstood it because they were exceptional, and because all of Vasco stayed on their side, to save them and be able to dream about a title again. Lele, Isaias, and Jair were the three stooges, those comedians of cinema who made films whose only humor was in their obtuseness who would spend half an hour trying to understand the simplest thing. And when it seemed as if they finally understood, they hadn't understood a thing. Vasco had gone from years, four years and years without a championship. This fact was attributed to the curse of Arubinha, a black man on Andarai, who had fallen to his knees in the mud after an Andarai versus Vasco game in Alvaro Chavez, his hands clasped together with his eyes on the black sky. If there is a god, may Vasco go twelve years without being champion. What had happened was that Andarai had waited more than an hour in the rain for Vasco to arrive at Fluminense's field. The referee, after waiting fifteen minutes, all of the time limits having been exhausted, had offered Andarai the win by W.O., walkover. Andarai had refused. They would not do something like that to Vasco. They knew there had been a disaster with the truck that was bringing the Vasco players, so they waited, refusing even to shelter themselves from the rain. When Vasco arrived, Arubinha just asked for one thing. You guys will win. You are stronger, but win by a little. Vasco promised, but didn't keep its promise. They shot 12 goals into the net of Andarai, thus the curse of Arubinha. Vasco did not get 12 years without winning a championship, but they did go nine. Vasco spent years assembling and disassembling South American sides, 
even paying Arubinha to undo the curse. Arubinha was treated like a prince in Sao Januario. One day, however, he disappeared. The news spread that he had been buried a toad in mm -hmm. Vasco's field. Vasco ordered that the lawn be torn up in search of the toad. They did not find any toad. Arubinha denied that he had done that. He went so far as to swear, but Vasco did not win a championship. Brazil was already going to war, and the following was being sung at Carnival. The tram goes past to the Sao Januario duel, taking one more fool to see Vasco get thrashed. Ciro Aranha took over the presidency of Vasco. He was the brother of Chancellor Osvaldo Aranha and would give Vasco political coverage in the new state. Ondinho Vieira was hired to be coach. He left Fluminense, whose squadron, squadron had finished suddenly with the last title, conquering two in a row in 1941, and he went with his weapons and baggage to Sao Januario with the up-to-date conception that the championship was a war. Vasco seemed to him a disarmed England after Dunkirk, but with a capacity of production of the United States of America. He needed three years to arm them to win the war of the championship, especially because he lacked those needed to take it from Flamengo. The great soccer power that was rising like Germany with its panzer divisions and with its press and its radio, the Atlantic Ocean, and indeed just a step away from Calais. Flamengo soon felt the danger of Vasco's potential. They had to end the Three Stooges of Club Vasco, which had an Adamer to boot. Maybe because when the soldiers were going to depart for the battlefields of Italy, they purposefully organized a Brazil versus Uruguay game. Before the real war in which one died, like cannon fodder, the soldiers would have a version of another war, the soccer kind, which, if it did not kill except by heart attack, placed the players, teams, clubs, and nation-states under the stress that was the Sunday meeting of man with pure, raw destiny. And there, Lele scored a goal from midfield. Pereirai Natero, the Uruguayan keeper, told everyone to get out of the way. When Lele ran to make the shot, Pereirai Natero bent over. He was still bending over when the ball hit the top left corner of the goal on the inside. It hit up there, then bounced down across the chalk line behind Pereirai Natero. Hitting the back post of the bottom, lifting up the net, like a point-blank shot, stuffing it, almost bursting its interlacing strings. The soldiers looked at each other, in Monte Castello, with the cannons roaring. That was not a kick. That was a cannon shot. It was the end of the Uruguayan side. It was a shot on goal in Brazil's favor, and the crowd ululated. Lele! Lele! In the second game, in Pacaembu, it was Jair's term. They t thought that Jair, with those skinny legs, those little lady's feet, did not have a shot. 
Well, they got a shot from Jair. The ball was even deformed, like the nose of a boxer getting a knockout punch. How could those two belong to the group of the Three Stooges? In compensation, Zi Zinho attacked and defended, going back and forth, the ball always in reach of his feet, for the knife-cut dribble, for the shot on goal, and he was defended almost like a bandit of soccer, a breaker of legs. In a crash with Augustinho, back on the Paulista side, Zizinho got the better of it. Augustinho was flattened, his leg broken. The message went out from Sao Paulo. Zizinho played dirty. Be careful with Zizinho. Whoever was not for Flamingo pointed at Zizinho, yelling every time he got the ball, He's the one! He's the one! Zizinho saved himself by getting his leg broken. It was in a Bangu versus Flamingo match in Figuera de Melo. He fell with Adautu on top of him. Adautu got up and he stayed down. He had a broken leg. He almost got it broken again in a Flamengo versus America match. Zizinho was starting to play again, and Jorginho de Mora do Pinto asked him, Which leg did you break? Zizinho showed him, and it was that leg that Jorginho do Mora do Pinto kicked in order to break it. This was what made every club defend the player whom others placed on a blacklist to finish off. Fluminense could not hear the smallest accusation against Bigode without immediately bristling. Bigode was the first really black man on Fluminense. Those before him were mulattoes, some quite dark. Bigode was black. So black that in the beginning, when he had not yet found his place on the team, he provoked almost racist reactions from the tricolor fans. One of them, Gestao Suarez de Mauro, was from Minas Gerais like Bigode. He didn't exactly have an objection against black players as long as they were the best. Fluminense could even feel the team of all black players, but black players like Leonidas and Fausto, like Domingos and Valdemar de Brito, like Zizinho. And all of a sudden, Bigode let loose. He was a wild animal on the field. He did real cobra strikes with his feet together, and the player on the other team better get out of the way. At that moment, Gustavo Suarez de Mauro accepted Bigode, and woe to anyone who in his presence touched the black man. And it was easy to destroy a player. Whoever did not have either nerves of steel or a certain carefreeness would find it difficult to withstand. The pressure exerted on the player, what was demanded or expected of him, more and more every day was increasingly intense. Madakai is one example of the many who fell during the bloody years of the wars of the championships. He came from the interior of Sao Paulo to Fluminense full of hope. He scored goals, which was the quickest route to glory, but suddenly he stopped scoring goals, and those who were waiting to finish him off or anybody else who was an opponent, that is, an enemy, jumped all over him. They soon arranged for him a nickname, which 
starting in the grandstands, gained entrance to the newspaper columns and was shouted into microphone, Mascarai! All Marakai had to do was get the ball and try to lift his chin for a charge on goal, and there would come the stinging rebuke, Mascarai. Marakai, then, would mess everything up. He did not know what to do with the ball anymore. On the day after a match, he would get up at five o'clock in the morning and go on foot to the Largo do Machado to buy newspapers still hot off the presses like bread just out of the oven. It was to read the match commentary, and there it was in print, like a shout from a fan of the other club still ringing in his ears, which did not let him sleep. The unappealing sentence, Mascarai. In one week, Madakai's hair turned white, like a Marie Antoinette of soccer. Chapter 5, Part 5 Flamengo was in its element. The club created a secret society, to which they gave the name, quite suggestive, Black Dragons. One day, Dio Cesano Ferreira Gomez, old Deo, still working in journalism with a regular foxhole at the Correa da Manja, appeared at the Colombo restaurant, which had substituted for the Café Rio Branco, now closed, with a Chinese streamer. On the streamer was a black dragon and some Chinese characters, naturally. Nobody thought to translate them. It was clear on its face it was the streamer of the black dragons a secret society from China. And right then and there, around the table where they ate lunch every day, Jose Lenz Dorego, Fadel Jose Maria Scasa, Moreira Liete, Alfreda Carvello, Jose Bastinjos Moreira Bastos, and Old Deo became black dragons. The, fr the French red wine which Zay Linz would not do without, served as blood taken from each of their veins. And the glasses were raised for the oath that united them in defense of Flamengo. Everything for Flamengo. When the news got out that within Flamengo there was a secret society called the Black Dragons, no one from the other clubs felt safe. The worst schemes were attributed to the Black Dragons. One did not know exactly what ramifications it had, what intentions it was hiding, and the name was frightening. Black Dragons? The ones who were most alarmed were Vasco. The Black Dragons spread it around that Vasco had a commission of purchase. What, however, could a commission of purchase do? If Vasco had one against an occult organization like a Ku Klux Klan, about which only one only knew its name and a terrible one at that. Thus, Vasco took care not to allow Vargas Nieto, president of the Metropolitan Federation, to be alone for even an instant with the red and black folks for no one knew who might be a black dragon. 
It was there on the eighth floor of the Siniac building that the decisions were made. Flamengo always arrived first, even though Vasco had its city headquarters one floor up. Jose Linz de Rego would appear, like someone who didn't want anything at all, and soon after, Fadel Fadel. And following them, one after another, Jose Bastinhos Moreira Bastos, Alfredo Curvelo, and Gerander Matos, extending and retracting his neck. Sometimes, even Dario de Melo Pinto, the president, and Gustavo de Carvalho, the ex-president. That was the signal. The elevator stopped at the floor above and went no further. It filled up and then emptied out on the eighth floor. Ciro Aranja came in front, flushed as if he had just been sunbathing. Igas Moniz widened his ears, enormous, like radars. Joao Wanderly, very fat, did not remove his handkerchief from his forehead. Rufino Ferreira and Vitorino Carniero looked like Azarian sheep-herding dogs tasked with watching the smallest movements of Flamengo. Fluminense was not sleeping on the job. Soon, Gastiao Suarez de Maura and Ruiz Carniera would be there. Nelson Thevenet of Botafogo showed up as if it were just for the well-made coffee of the old black Tancredo. And Antonio Avalar gave the impression that he was just there to pay a visit or to see if his portrait as ex-president of the place was still hanging on the wall. Domingos Vasallo Caruso was never absent, but he made it very clear that he was not part of any conspiracy. He brought cigars for Vargas Nieta and showed himself to be, to everyone, as protective as a good English maple. The one who broke the tension that would sometimes become unbearable was Alfredo Trangin, Bon Suceso's lawyer. Singing a song he said was the Arabic anthem or telling anecdotes about Turks. There, no one could conspire, but everyone thought themselves to be fulfilling a sacred duty. All of a sudden, Zay Linz asked for a piece of paper and wrote in legible letters, Sports and Life, for the journal Dos Sports. With certainty, he would be tearing apart Vasco, calling Ondino Vieira a fraud. Once he really did call him that, and Ciro Aranja got offended because down in the South, one did not call anyone a fraud with impunity. When, at the next Vasco versus Flamingo game, Zay Linz appeared on the platform of honor of Sao Januario, there, was, there were Vasco fans shouting his name, wanting to do him in once and for all. Zay Linz confronted the Vasco crowd like Captain Vitorino Paparabo. He had the courage of the old Carniero da Cunha, even to get beat up, which was the greatest of all. 
But nobody from Vasco wanted to beat up Zay Linz. Early in the morning, the thing that all the Vasco fans read to fire themselves up, to become more Vasco, to even ready themselves to die for Vasco, was the 10-line article of Zay Linz. Little did the Vasco fans know that this was the voice of the Black Dragons, that Zay Linz was the scribe of the terrible sect. Anything that Flamingo intended seemed to Vasco, Fluminense, and Botafogo, their eyes peeled so as not to let anything escape them as a suggestion of the Black Dragons. When Sao Cristoval intended to take its game with Flamengo to Sao Januario because the field of Figuero de Melo was small, it was practically accused of being a Judas who had sold himself for 30 silvers. Sao Cristoval played the part of the proud poor man. For them, the income did not matter. They would play in Figuero de Melo. And since they had no alternative, they ordered the hurried construction of cheap grandstands made of flimsy wood. That way, more people could see the game. At noon, the gates of Figuera de Mello were closed, and the police were beating back the people who had to remain outside. The game lasted only 15 minutes. It was enough for Flamengo to score one goal, for the crowd to start to jump and demand another. Suddenly, the new grandstand of Sao Cristoval collapsed beneath the weight of the human mass. It was as if an abyss had opened up, swallowing the people. In an instant, the field was full of wounded people that were dragging themselves along, screaming. It was no longer a soccer field. It was a battlefield. After the battle, the cannons going silent so that one could hear the cries of the mutilated, the groans of the moribund, to show in one glance all the horrors of war. All the ambulances of the emergency room were mobilized to Figuera de Mello, coming and going, the sirens screaming through the streets. Fortunately, no one died, at least in Figuera de Mello. In Sao Januario, during a game of no importance, Vasco easily beat Madureira, just a smattering of people in the grandstand. Two fans had a disagreement. Some other folks showed up, telling them to cut it out, and a soldier on the running track pulled out his revolver and shot three times in the air. The result? Three deaths. At each recoil of the gun, a victim fell. One understands why General Cordiero de Faria, a Sao Cristobal fan, when he could not go to a game, would send in his place his second-in-command, Colonel Parachi Barcelos, as an observer in loco, who would bring him a loyal recounting of the battle. And Zay Linz, wrote that the conquest of the championship by Flamengo had given him the same joy as the victory of Stalingrad, which provoked an indignant reaction from Ginoli Nio Amando. How could Jose Linz Dorego make sport of what was most sacred, 
Or did Jose Lins Dorego not know that in Stalingrad they had fought for the freedom of the world? Genolino Amado only had eyes for war in foreign places. He had not been aware of the war in Brazil, which had been unleashed by the passion of the people for their club, their city, their state, and even for their Brazil. This is why Sao Januario exploded in the big final between Cariocas and Paulistas. The crowd would once in a while spit out a fan from the grandstand. One would see suddenly a human figure rolling over the heads, pushed together compactly like a sea of people, a rough sea in a storm, until it fell onto the cinder running track where it remained immobile and almost nude or entirely nude like a banana squeezed out of its peel. And it was for no other reason that the decisive Flamengo versus Vasco game of 1944 turned into a war operation. Even troops, real troops, were brought by Flamengo to the Gavea field. The Coastal Mobile Artillery Group GMAC was nearby, and the soldiers all rooted for Flamengo. So, Flamengo put 500 of them behind the scoring goal. Vasco refused to be the pious one. They did everything so that Flamengo's field would remain prohibited, as it had been since the collapse of the Sao Cristoval grandstands. The police had prohibited all the fields that had wooden grandstands. Flamengo had one made of cement, but nonetheless ended up on the blacklist. In 28 days, Flamengo built general admission stands of cement on the other side. They made steps of well-packed sand and placed cement on top. The work was finished before the game against Vasco. And then Flamengo, who were the ones who would sell the tickets, made a map of war. Whoever was for Vasco in the chairs, the grandstands, the general admission areas had to stay among the Flamengo fans. And, as if that were not enough, they had the 500 GMAC soldiers behind the scoring goal, ready for anything, awaiting the signal for invasion. Vasco took Jair da Rosa Pinto off the team. This would be a game of life and death and Jair da Rosa Pinto, as much as he might play or pass in tight spaces, was not a player prepared to die for any club. He always came off the field with his shirt dry. Ondino Vieira, who was often seeing ghosts, kept Jair out of the game. Jaja, with the feet of clay, got his revenge in the preliminary match. He never ran more in his life. He soaked his shirt. He destroyed Flamengo's reserves. It was to show that if he had played on the first team, Vasco would be champion. The champion, what is more for the third time in a row, was Flamengo. Even today, 1947, the Vasco fans who saw the game swear by what is most holy that Valido climbed up with his two hands on the shoulders of the black Argimero to head the goal 
in for the red and black victory. Argemiro had his back turned toward him, blocking Valido's path, and Valido jumped up behind him. Perhaps he really did put his hands on his shoulders to increase the momentum of his rise and to put his forehead on the ball. The ball went in, and the GMAC invaded the field. Barqueta, the Vasco keeper, when he came to himself, was in the middle of the so-called big circle, like a soldier who, after a defeat, still stunned by the violence of the battle, is lost, wandering and searching, for he knows not what. It was the impact, not so much of the goal or of the defeat, but of the divisions of the enemy army, which in successive waves were invading the fields and taking everyone unawares with cries of, Flamengo! Flamengo! Suddenly, Barqueta saw himself in the war that Ondino Vieta was always talking about and in which he did not believe very much. He knew that the world was at war, but far away in the fields of Europe, of Africa, of Asia, on the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Not here. He was a civilian, dressed as a keeper. And suddenly there were the soldiers, unarmed but soldiers, and crazed by a Flamengo victory. There are those who say that the referee, Guilherme Gomez, was pointing to the middle of the field with his arms extended, the GMAC soldiers scraping past him together dragged him along by those extended arms. It was the war that Ondinho Vieira had spoken so much about and that had fallen right on top of him. Vasco did not keep quiet. They shouted their protests from the rooftops. It was no use. Flamengo was the champion of the city for the third consecutive time. The city celebrated all night long. Zay Lin's Dorego went home by foot, accompanying the crowd, which shouted, jumped, and danced samba. The film that Vasco showed at the Capitolio building mattered little, which at the time of the goal stuttered, stopping so that one could see Valido climbing on the shoulders of Argemiro as if playing leapfrog. Nor did the shaky photographs taken from the film in which one could not quite see the hands of Valido on the shoulders of Argemiro. Ari Barroso agreed with the people of Vasco. Valido had actually climbed on Argemiro, but it was to humiliate the poor Vasco fan, who was feeling consoled for a moment by that admission from someone beyond suspicion. Who would be less suspicious than Ari Barroso, who every once in a while was chased after in Sao Januaria with cries of, Stop! Stop! It was because of Ari Barroso that Vasco had ordered the construction of radio booths above the grandstand to put him safely out of reach of the anger of the Vasco community. Then, Ari Barroso would explain that Flamengo's win, for him, had had only one defect. The doubt subsided. Had Valido climbed or not climbed on Argemiero? For many Flamengos, he had not climbed. Valido himself denied that he had climbed. 
And Ari Barroso summed up then his ideal as a fan. He wanted Flamengo to be champion, and in a game against Vasco, by a goal scored with the hand. But with everyone watching, above all the referee, because if the referee didn't see it, it wouldn't be any fun at all. Only then did the Vasco fan discover that Ari Barroso too belonged to the sect of the Black Dragon. Alrighty. Catherine Massey Book Club Context of White Supremacy audio segment one is done. We will pick up well or for me it's page two forty seven transformed into a private in an army in a total war. That's where we will pick up at for audio segment two The Trial of the Black Man. Okie dokie. Um, the number to dial if you have commentary is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 605 313 Five one six four, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail dot com. Lots to share. We should be here on Sunday as well. White Paul Games. Oh my goodness. White, but we just read a memoir about the LSU basketball team, didn't we? All that hubbub this week about the LSU Lady Tigers women's national champions. We'll be chatting about that this coming Sunday. Just stay tuned. White Paul games now cleaning up something that i missed from last week can't believe i nearly forgot this so much about this book for a brief period and again most of this is probably just because i went to buffalo in the middle of us reading this if i had stayed my behind here and just been focused on this book man we would have done a lot more programs around this book for the future can still do it but i mean Wow, there's so much material here, especially just do a little bit of digging. You know, I, can't, I probably should emphasize this every book forward. I do not read books for literary enjoyment. Like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful sentence. Wow, what an alliteration. Wow, what a, what a use of doves as a motif in this book. Wow. I don't read for any of that. I mean, I pay attention, but that's not why I'm trying to learn. I'm so ignorant about everything. I'm trying to learn. I have learned so much about Brazil reading this book. What did you learn, Gus? (laughs) Get to it. I forgot this from last week. Now, he mentioned last week the carnival song that was a big hit. It's O Teu. Cabelo Nao Nega. That's the Portuguese translation is, come on, what I said, this book, the correct title is Negroes with 
kinky hair in Brazilian soccer. This song is Your Hair Doesn't Deny It. Let me give you the lyrics. Let me give you the lyrics. We're going to have to play this one time. Oh, it'll be in Portuguese. If I find this in English, we'll have to play it one time before we wrap. Your hair doesn't deny it, mulata. Because you're a mulatto in color. But since the color doesn't stick, mulata, mulata, I want your love. Let's hear some more. Your hair doesn't deny it, mulata. Oh, that's a repeat. Let's get the next one. You have a real taste of Brazil, delectable Negro. You have an indigo soul. What does that mean? Mulata, mulatto girl. Oh, see there. Raping the little girls and the boys. Mulatto girl. My love, I was appointed your intervening lieutenant. Didn't we just get finished talking about war? What is going on here? Your hair doesn't deny it, mulatto. We heard all that. Who invented you, my pancadao, had a consecration, the moon envying you makes a face because mulata you are not from this planet what am i an alien who are you talking to et and you want to have sex with et when my dear you came to earth portugal declared war the competition then was colossal vasco da gama against the naval battalion and then it's back to the refrain like what it, this is a Brazilian classic. This is one of those like you play it and the whole town knows the song. Color doesn't matter in Brazil. This is Brazil. What are you talking about, man? Nobody. Ble- what? What? Learn something about everything. Just a teaspoon. Just a teaspoon. Let me read a little bit from one of the folks who wrote in, and then we'll get the callers as well. Let's see. Uh, bang. Okay. One investor wrote in. Greetings, Gus. Thanks for all your supplementary information regarding Brazil. I have learned a lot. Me too. You were mentioned last week regarding Spingler's book, The Decline of the West, led me on a tangent that if you indulge me for a bit you may find interesting that book was mentioned specifically in this text last week Uh, a critique of Spengler's book was written by Ravilo Oliver a professor of classics at the University of Illinois Oliver for the most part was very laudatory of the work but his main criticism was that Spengler did not emphasize the role of race A quote from Oliver's essay, it is beyond question that the races of mankind differ greatly in physical appearance, in susceptibility to specific diseases, and in average intellectual capacity. Bell curve, if you will. Mm -hmm. Oliver was a founding member of the John Birch Society. That's like 1960s racist group of white people. 
1950, excuse me, but was drummed out because of his strident anti-Jewish views during a luncheon meeting of the so-called white nationalist Washington, D.C., 1974. Oliver met a young attendee named William Pierce, who was having trouble getting his message across. Oliver suggested that he write a book of fiction. This inspired Pierce to write The Turner Diaries. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, you can read, I guess, Mr. Spengler and uh, Mr. Revilio, I think is how you say it. Revilo. Yeah, Revilo Oliver. You can read uh, its criticism and tribute. It's published in multiple sources and read some of his views on racism. This guy even wrote a report on the black Muslims. Apparently, he was not a fan of Elijah Muhammad. Mr. Revilo Oliver. Imagine that. He has extensive correspondence with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI as well. I think they might have had a Cointel Pro file on him. Anyway, he continues. Number one, uh, page 234, Joel, the Afro-Indigenous goalie, Mundinho, I think that's how you say it, dark-skinned mulatto. I do not recall a previous reference to a Afro-Indigenous. Officially, there are five racial categories on the Brazilian census. Broncos, white, pardos, mixed, prados, black, amarelos, East Asian, yellow, indigenous, indigenous. However, there are more than 136 different terms in usage by Brazilians for different racial categories and all manner of systems of subclassification by academics in Brazil. C, racial classification and terminology in Brazil. YouTube video, Black Brazil Today, Cal's guest, Marquise Treve, 136. That is a recipe for, and at the end of the day, what was the first category? Broncos. Broncos. That was the first one. You all pick how many ever you need, 136, 1,036, whatever you need. Broncos at the top anywhere in the world. I need to see like the actual census to see just to confirm. So when you get the official for reals Brazilian census is Broncos at the top the way white is at the top here in the U.S. That right there. You can put anything else you want there like white bing, and then you all just go off and do you know check 50 boxes. Hey how about that whoopee. Other, put that in too. You can write in some extra ones. Number two, page 235 to 236, Metropolitan Federation of Soccer, Gestapo. Monitor the slightest movements of players. My Gestapo. Gestapo made reports like those of an espionage service. Slave patrols. J. Edgar, didn't I just say J. Edgar G. Wiz? Woo, smoking. J. Edgar Hoover's first iteration of surveillance, the Bureau of Investigation, FBI, Cointelpro, the Bureau of State Security, boss, the domestic organization inflicting terror on black people in South Africa during so-called apartheid. The tactics are global in the system of racism, white supremacy, and sometimes these organizations coordinate internationally. Number three. 239 to 241. Lele Stocky Mulatto. Passed as white. 
that's even pause right there. If they've made so much progress, right? If color doesn't matter and all this nonsense and hey, we don't care, black people may why would I need to pass as white? Especially if I'm not even a nigger. I'm light, my hair isn't too kinky. Why do I need to pass as white? Why my man Zeze Preacopea, why you gotta go get a nose job? Nose is too flat abroad, man. I can feel my brother Michael Jackson. Who's that? He hasn't even been born yet. You'll know. He went to Brazil, remember? They don't really keep did the Brazil. Oh, I can't believe that. Anyway, take my brother Michael Jack. You, you, I know. I feel your pain, brother. You're not even born yet, but I know. Zezé Prel Capel last week. Why would you have to do all this if black people have made so much progress? Why would I need to pass? Black and I'm proud, right? Jim, oh, that's right. Oh, right and exact. Number three. Uh, or I didn't even finish it. Yeah. Mulatto passed as white. Isaiah's slim black man, slippery and fast. Jair mulatto, thin lady's foot. Lele, Isaiah's Jair were the three stooges. Jair's skinny legs, lady's feet. How could those two belong to the three stooges? The continual homoeroticism in this text is a little overwhelming. Eh, a teaspoon. Have we had a similar text with this much? Oh, no. Other than the delectable Negro, of course. Book club Shaft. Oh yeah, old. Uh, forget it'll come to me. The white man who wrote Shaft. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And Woody Allen. And Woody Allen. That's three that I can. You have to give me some more time to think about because we've read so much. But that's definitely Shaft, and then definitely Woody Allen too. And that one is really yeah. Anyway, uh, interesting that they would compare them to three white clowns. Just another way of denigrating black males absolutely absolutely and and you get the same what i said before they are emasculated it's not just your clowns and buffoons that's how black people are thought of all over the world even today but it's the lady foot is so much of that and i said especially for the uh mulattoes so-called in this text the non-white non-black players they are somehow more feminine with their dress and the nose job and all the rest of it and then he's got this old slippery that reminded me what it said last year. It said old Gus T was asking them slippery questions. We got these old slippery, oily black people, see? And they say somebody is slick also. That means, right, that you're trying to do something conniving, right? Old trickster, right? You got to watch that one, see? Might be trying to pull something, rape some of you slick, see? Old trickster, see? Uh, number four, page 241 to 242. Breaker of legs, Zizenho, Ziz, I think that's it? He played dirty defend the player whom others placed on the black list bigode the first really black some of this i just cracked what does that mean we got a rip for real for real like we got an authentic negro and then we don't have any of them old fake counterfeit old negros and black people that you all met under this is a for real for real negro right here what it continues uh really black uh in the beginning he provoked almost re- oh i gotta read all that over again wait a minute so bigode the first really black man on Flumin ends in the beginning he provoked almost racist reactions from tricolor fans he was a wild animal on the field Arr! going out to rape folks and things another theme on this book besides homoeroticism is the rife anti-blackness that the author engages in 
pining away for the good old days when the white men were the only ones playing. The ones from the good families. That's the same thing the Nazis said. That's what they were doing. <laughs> like, yes, exactly, my white brothers. We need good white stock. They got the right idea with that eugenics thing in the United States. We're going to go study that. We're going to get rid of all these feeble-minded, no-count white people, and then everybody else, too, all these dark people, yes. Uh, they were also called true amateurs, unsullied by professionalism. Now, giving way to these black beasts who are drunkards, bribe takers and engage in all sorts of barbarism both on and off the field maybe both themes are complementary obtaining the same result disparaging the role of black soccer players I would agree because there's so much of that they're animals and they don't even play the correct way if you get them you know you gotta train them and they're illiterate and <sighs> let's see number five page 242 Maraca, nickname Mascara, hair turned white like Marie Antoinette of soccer, more feminization of the black male, and this nickname is footnoted, if you scroll back and check the chapter 5 footnotes this nickname, it literally translates to mask yourself, like put a bag on your face or whatever, now them saying this to a non-white person especially, I think this is a black male, like come on, mask yourself like come on, come on and then they terrorize him so much that his hair turns up. That reminds me of Jackie Robinson. He died. Oh, that's the year this book was published. I've said that over and over. That's This book was published the same year Jackie Robinson was allowed to get a job in professional baseball. You can see the pictures. Jackie Robinson one died very young. And then his hair turned gray very very early why would that be same thing we're reading right here same time period too and he was a world war ii veteran put some respect on jack robinson's name people talking crazy read that's another one we should have read his biography a long time ago uh let's see number six page 242 to 243 flamingo created a secret society black dragons a secret society from china worst schemes attributed to the Black dragons. The name was frightening. Black dragons spread. Vasco had commission of purchases. What could do against like the Ku Klux Klan? Only a new name, a terrible name. So the author is comparing the black dragons to the Klan. Yes, a secret occult organization, powerful. One, the Klan was super powerful at this time period. I mean. Anyway, that branch of white supremacy, U.S. Klan, powerful at this time period, not its heyday like 1920s, but still way powerful. And this is another one. Like I said, this is Gus T. as a historian. He mentions lynching. I don't read books, any books where someone talks about a lynching or just mentions this without giving any context. What is that? What are you talking about? They would not just assume that everybody reading this book knows what a lynching is. That would be explained. This book is written in South America, and it's still assumed that you know what a lynching is. This book is written in Portuguese in South America in 1947. He doesn't even have a footnote for the Ku Klux Klan. It's assumed by the author. You know what that is even pause and think about that 
This is not the day when you can flip out your smartphone and go look and all that. There's no footnote to indicate that this was something that was changed for English readers, right? They would have put that in generally. It is assumed Portuguese readers of this book or Brazilian readers of this book, you know what the clan is. Global system indeed. Birth of a Nation had been out for about 25 years at that point and at that time that was, I think that and Gone with the Wind were like two of the most popular films and technologically advanced films of this time period. Get one more page or yeah, page 247. Oh, we didn't get that far. I got to stop. Uh, 344. There we go. New grandstand collapsed beneath weight of human mass. Soldiers shot three times in the air, three deaths. Vasco game in 1944 turned into a war operation. Coastal mobile artillery group. Death and destruction is entertainment in the global system of racism, white supremacy. In fact, I spoke with a listener a few weeks back and I told them for white people, as opposed to you just go out, you want to have fun and do all of that. No, 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 no. You just look at the words. They call this wreck creation. They don't pronounce it that way. They say it's recreation, but no, 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 no. It is wreck creation. That's why you got all the brain damage with the Super Bowl. Go knock the hell out of somebody and get some boxing. Get old Jack Johnson, Mike Tyson, get some more brain damage and get some soccer. And we go kill somebody if the team doesn't win and throw bananas. That is why that hooliganism. When they were running around in the streets in Brazil, when we started reading this book, because they were upset about the election again, the team didn't win. My candidate didn't win. I'm putting my jersey on and run out here. We're going to do some looting. That is white culture through and through. The number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate folks with a hand up let's see our caller at 2262 should be with us I uh, saw some other hands if you got bumped or whatever the case may be press star 61 we'll get you on again let's see 2262 should be with us maybe hurt yes sir yes sir thank sorry you to interrupt call, was that yeah. you I'm, I'm so apologize for being rude forgive me was that you who asked did the Nazis go to South America some weeks back and now we've popped up in the world war two in the book i i think so yeah i believe i brought that up before yes sir okay right on yes thank you for taking my call and greetings everybody on the line the listeners um yeah uh, i want to i called in last week gus and it was some issues trying to get online it, every time i kept trying to uh, type in star six one it wouldn't let me get on so um I do have a couple things I want to say from last week. Um, I noticed that one of the players is named Sant Cristo. I think that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Um, I think it was a non-white black player. I think that goes along with how we've been, uh, how religion has been used to 
control us and keep us uh, uh, very docile. Um, uh, I, I also want to bring up that another one of the players, his, he was a goalie, name was Victor, and his, he had a nickname, a.k.a. was Kitty. And I thought that that was very effeminate to uh, call a male. His name is Kitty. Um, and uh, also from last week, one of the players, uh, uh, Zeze, I believe, uh, say he looked like a Mongolian or a Chinese person. Um, uh, just, you know, they just make up these racial classifications. He looks Chinese, Mongolian. Uh, I guess you said earlier about uh, being uh, uh, indigenous and the mestizo from before in the book club. It's just all these classifications just cause more confusion. But for this week, um, I have on page 235 uh, to 236, um, I didn't know that uh, Brazil uh, joined the side of the Axis powers, um, but I think that will make sense considering uh, uh, what you brought up today about a lot of the Nazis, uh, I guess, uh, retreating down there. And, um, and also on page 35, I believe, uh, uh, he used the term Gestapo, and the part says the Federation of Soccer went so far as to create a Gestapo to monitor the slightest movement of the players who were going to defend Rio. He did not even take a secret, uh, make a secret uh, of the name of the new organization of the Federation. It really was Gestapo. Not, of course, in the official documents, but when he referred to the Luis Vinales, the boss of Camarero, and Jose Tricolor himself, he would say affectionately, my Gestapo. Uh, that right there, and the, uh, it not being a, uh, an official uh, uh, organization, uh, that just means this is a, a, um, a clandestine organization used to fight people, just like how they did... Uh, I guess uh, Da Silva, uh, they ran up on him, or ran up on him, they uh, approached him, and he had to, I guess, uh, well, he had to do what he had to do to, I guess, survive the encounter. Uh, when he was, uh, and he was also drunk. He was, he said he drank some beer, and he was also drunk a little bit. So uh, it goes back to being having sobriety, um, and uh, he complied. He complied and did not like it at all. So, but. You know, Mr. Fuller says when you're in, uh, when you see those, uh, when you have uh, you know, law enforcement of some type engaging you, which is obviously uh, an act of white supremacy aggression, um, you comply to the best of your ability. You don't run, you don't fuss, you don't fight, and, you know, you do what you can to survive on that. Um, on page 237, I wrote down, um, the the uh, I guess the team they had the the bombs bursting in air and stuff like that and it said that it was it said it was like it was music to a lot of the yeah had okay nightmare continued it was music from the heavens for the polista's ears it was. Uh, another thing, well, for police, it was another thing altogether, but it was talking about the bombs bursting in the air and how it was music to these players. Um, that's not music. Explosions and things of that sort, uh, 
this can cause major serious ear damages, uh, major uh, listening damages. So uh, that's not any type of music that I think non people should be listening to. And and, it, and it's it's not funny, but it's odd that well not odd, but it, you know it's telling that they uh, got excited by all these bombs bursting in the air and got you know it was fun to them like you're having a good time on the quote unquote battlefield. Um, On page 239, uh, when they're referring to the three non-white players, one player, one player was um, Lele, and the other player then was Isaiah, and the other player was Jer. The the Lele character, it's and I think someone also brought it up uh, about how he spoke about these char- these uh, players in a really effeminate homoerotic way um he said the larry person was thick you know with the thick legs and stuff like that and he was a mulatto probably want to say mulatto or something but he can pass for white the pass for white thing uh, that's obviously not true you call him a mulatto um the isaiah character says was black and slim uh he's he's really focusing on the body and uh these sensual uh, descriptors of these men, these males, I mean. Um, with the Jair car- uh, person, he said, thin with a lady's foot and bad hair. I guess the, the bad hair commentary goes, you know, even to South America. Um, that, that was a, <laughs> it was just very typical, the whole thing uh, about those three people um i also noted that on page uh 243 when he brought up the kkk yeah he didn't give any more information about them i thought that was interesting as well um okay i do have some more notes but my other notes start on page 249 but that'll be it for me right now and uh thank you for taking my call guys Much obliged, sir. Got a notes from last week as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, Lauren should be with us as well. Uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard, sir? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, hi. I had a couple of things to say about um, your comments and the previous caller's comments. When you were talking about the racial classifications, I don't know if you were talking about the census, the way they put white at the top, I thought they might have changed that. So I I Googled that, and white still came up first, and it was like five racial classifications, but it was like white and then four different ways to say non-white, you know, like African-American, uh, Hawaiian, I don't know, a bunch of other ways to say non-white. Um, also, the caller who just talked when he was talking about music and the sound of um, warfare, battle sounds, it made me think, a couple of things this session made me think about um, that other book, The Half Has Never Been Told. But there's a part, and The Half Has Never Been Told, and it goes, uh, as the world quieted, he could hear, howling in the woods around him, the bloodhounds. 
And he thought about how he heard the white folks say that the music they made was the sweetest music in the world. And, you know, they're talking about a bloodhounds um, catching slaves. So I thought I would share that with you guys um, from the text. Um, my, my notes aren't the greatest today. I was um, doing something. I was in the car when I was listening. But they were talking about the real stress of being a soccer player, like a soldier in a war. Uh, this week, it was a lot of war talk and relating um, soccer games to war. And it just made me think about the symbolism of it all. And I was thinking of Dr. Welsing as well. I also noted when he was talking about one of the players that uh, he called the Three Stooges, I think that's incorrect, um, but he said one of them passed as white. And I, I thought to myself, hey, if Mr. Philho is writing in this book about this male passing as white, then he could not have been passing too effectively. Um, he was probably just a non-white person, and it just sounds like a lot of confusion. Um, later, another battle uh, reference, he was talking about someone making an up-to-date perception um, that the championship was a war. Um, later, they, he said that was not a kick, that was a cannon shot. Um, he mentioned Paulista several times, and uh, I don't know what that is, so... If you guys, like, understood what a Paulista was, I'd really appreciate it if you could tell me, you know, if you could say it in a succinct manner. Otherwise, I'll try to look it up and figure it out after the book club is over. Um, the narrator, I would just like to say she is doing a wonderful job with these pronunciations. I know you said it before, Gus, but, oh, man, I don't think I could um, narrate this text. I, I don't know if I could narrate any text, Um so I would just like to thank her for doing that. Um, later, it was a, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I think the author said it was an almost racist reaction. I didn't know what that meant, but later on he starts talking about whatever the almost racist reaction was, and then he said someone wasn't really racist. Uh, he implied he liked black players as long as they were the best. I don't, I don't know, man. Um, if you're not thinking about white people and non-white people the same, um, I don't know. I, that just doesn't make sense to me, and I don't know what almost racist is. And I guess I'll end it um, when he was, he made a statement, it was easy to destroy a player. It made me think again of the half has never been told. Um, I heard a term when I read that book or read a term that I'd never heard before called creative destruction. And he was just describing white people and when they're at their creative best, um, saying that that's when they are at their best, when they're getting ready to destroy creative destruction I have never heard that term before, but it has, um, I've remembered it, and I think it's an apt description of the way that racists behave on this planet.
Um, and that's all I have for now. Thank you for letting me speak. Much obliged, Lauren uh, Paulista. I had to look this up too. A Brazilian descended from the first Portuguese colonists and from the indigenous people of Brazil, a native or inhabitant of the city of Sao Paulo. Oh, okay. I see it. Paulista, Sao Paulo. I got it. I got still learning, still learning. Okay. Um, much so is the Paulista white? Well, it would seem this does not really attach to racial classification directly. I mean, if you, you, it would seem look based, based on what they said, we're Brazilian descended from the first Portuguese colonists, those would be white people, but then when they say and from the indigenous people of Brazil, I think they'd be non-white. So you could probably be either on this and it would just depend. Yeah, you could probably be either white or non-white. Do you have connections to either group? White, the original white colonists, native non-white inhabitants of South America, Brazil specifically, or inhabitant, a native or an inhabitant of the city of Sao Paulo so that one definitely I'm a native I was born here that would make you a Paulista you could be white or non-white or I just live here you could be yeah I think all these you could be white or non-white for other folks they uh, process it or you see a different definition or what have you let me know still learning oh they have whole pages uh, for this kind of says the same thing I guess it gives more detail and the origin of when this word came into existence. Paulista, P-A-U-L-I-S-T-A, Paulista. Okaldokals, let's see. Uh, going back to my notes, let's see. Chapter 5, Alfredo II of Vasco. Blacker than he felt, his muscles aching. Nestor, a light-skinned mulatto, had suddenly turned into steel. The whites is talking about after they have this big explosion and the cherry bombs and all of that. All of this reminded me, we all are talking eloquently about how just death, wreck creation, all of that. White culture, but I mean, they brag about this. They put it in the national anthem here bombs bursting in air made a song out of it like oh it's the best thing ever so beautiful and then they don't just when they sing that they normally have military aircraft fly overhead and do you know fireworks and other oh just like we bombed the gooks chaps and showed them what did play ball woo or since we're talking world war ii you can get one of fuller's classics Patton, he loves that film. I do too. It is amazing. I think it won a number of Academy Awards, but really just the first five minutes, white man, General Patton, stands in front of the he says, Ball. The sting of battle. Oh, I love it so. He says, Every real American loves the sting of battle. We're gonna go out there and kill him by the bushel. By the bushel. That's what he said white culture 
Uh, so let's see. We do all this bombing. It says São Paulo Paulistas boasted the title of two-time champion of Brazil. Now they were coming to Rio to try for three with Leonidas da Silva wearing the jersey with the thin vertical stripes in black, white, and red, the colors of Sao Paulo's state flag. Now that caught my attention just because Dr. Welsing talked about those color symbols and all of that. That red, black, and white, that's the colors of the Nazi regime. They don't have the color pictures with this book, but if you go look at some of those pictures, and this is the same time as World War II, and all this is World War War and Gestapo and all this, like, dang, what, what, what is going? Hmm. Let's see. We got the Gestapo. Let's say the idea that the Gestapo follow in the steps of the karaoke players and made reports like those of an espionage service. Brazil entered the war on the side of the Axis powers. I did not know that. I don't know if that's. I don't know. I'm I'm not a World War II buff. I'm gonna ask Mr. Fuller next time I speak. Like, did did you know Brazil entered? That would be another one too for the. I thought Brazil was cool. Like, what do you mean? They were on the Axis. What do you mean? Study a little bit about everything. But I never heard that before. Them being on the crazy. Uh, let's see they got to make deals and agreements that we're not going to have rioting and looting and hooliganism we got to bring in soldiers for the football game like this is so embarrassing but I mean this is today where they got soccer where you got to have games with no fans because they come in unruly and racist and all the rest of it uh, let's see all of this white ball games this is Dr. Francis Cress Welsing really all of this is exactly what she stated and just making it more explicit in terms of the war is the white war against the non-white majority on this planet and I mean Jesus Christ this book could not make that any clearer especially drifting right into World War II uh, let's see and emphasizing that yes these ball games are a metaphor for war and specifically the war of white supremacy racism and in fact oh my god I totally forgot I mentioned that program for Sunday half of that is about the NCAA women's tournament no count classless LSU and the Negro starters the other component is about tackle football I was preparing White people have very interesting research on the origins of American tackle football and how that came. Oh, my God. All of the white manhood, the same homoeroticism that we've been talking about in soccer, football in South America is the exact same thing for the origins of tackle football in North America. And at the same time period, early 20th century, going right into World War Two fascinating let's see uh, they say, they say uh, it was war if Flamingo and Vasco Fluminense and Botafogo were facing each other as almost foreign powers as enemies imagine Sao Paulo and Rio and in the office on Relacao Street after a coffee was sent to ease the tension Dr. Welsing again how do we calm things? Let me send you a little bit of chocolate. Send you a little bit of 
good chocolate. My niggers went out there and got these coffee beans especially for you. That'll calm things down between us. Exchange some melanated dark substances. Let's see, we got... Zezé Preocopeo was the one mentioned last week uh, who got a nose job. Uh, let's see. All of this, you got to die for soccer. Dr. Welsing talked about that. Great Arthur Ashe said, I'm, this is not war for me. It's just a ball game. Jimmy Connors, these other white ball players, this is war. This is death. I got to die for these ball games. Why is that? It's bigger than the ball game. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, let's see. Incidentally, I think there was probably a lot more stress on the black players because it seemed like there was a much quicker trigger to lynch them, accuse them of being a traitor or something of that sort. He had already said before that the white players, they didn't want to do this professionally. Like, eh, I, don't, I don't like the idea of whoring my services out. Like, remember, he said that before. Let's see. We already got the, the Three Stooges and the homoeroticism of all that. Uh, the Isaiah's black male, slippery and fast, uh, malicious. Uh, let's see. The bad hair. Again, this book should have been Negroes with kinky hair. Uh, again, if they made so much progress, he says Lele, Isaiah, and Jair were on Madreira. And they were indeed spoken of, but no one would exaggerate in their praise. And it was even insinuated to devalue them that they had been bought. See, that's what I said again. It's the, you know, these whores, you know, they just can get bribed so easy. You can't trust a nigger. That sort of attitude is so pervasive here. Uh, let's see. They got duels in South America even. Uh, let's see. He gives a comparison. He says, Flamingo, the great soccer power, was rising like Germany with its panzer divisions. That's the tank division, uh, infamous tank division uh, from World War II. Uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised about that metaphor since Brazil was on the access side. Um, Let's see. This was made blacklist. They had that apparently terminology even in South America uh, let's see I I think Lauren brought up when they talk about Bigode being the first real black man on Fluminense and she said what is almost racist from the tricolor fans he was so black it's like whoa you got this I don't it's, I don't even know what to say. What did you get this guy to the head? It almost sounds like you racist. Oh, well, well, I'm not racist. I'm just saying that, you know, I mean, ooh, it's, we don't even, oh, my God, it's, it's charcoal. I don't, <laughs> but then that's almost the same thing. I, said, I don't even know what that is. Like, I didn't quite say nigger. I was, I got about to the second G and I caught myself. And that's not quite racist. See? We got... And then after he's almost a victim of racism, Bigode say Bigode he let loose. He's a wild animal. Even he did real cobra strikes. 
not I don't watch a lot of soccer, but I don't hear that. Cobra strikes? Is that a is that a soccer term? Do they say that? Hmm. Uh they got the hair turn. Let's see. So much of that life and death and gotta kill somebody for all this. I reckon I can pause there. If you have additional notes, just jot them down and we should have ample time once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, we will get right back. Mario Filo, Negroes with kinky hair in Brazilian soccer. Audio segment number two. Transformed into a private in an army in a total war, it is easy to imagine the provocations to which the player was submitted. Some sacrificed themselves without a complaint, with the vanity of a tough guy. One example was Pirilho, who had entered the field in the Vasco versus Flamengo final with a testicular inflammation. To be able to play, and he would not even consider staying out, he received on the spot a Novocaine injection. Only this way did he manage to play and run on the field, fighting desperately. It was a title that was at stake. Bria was another to feel the prick of Dr. Pais Barreto's dito. He had a tumor in his back, which had not yet reached the point of being cut out, but which impeded him. So much was the pain that was only increasing with every step. In Flamengo's changing room, before the Novocaine injection, Bria had remained prone, wailing, lying on his stomach on the long bench. One had to be quite a man to play like that. Perilho might take a kick from which a jockey strap cup would hardly protect him, and Bria was taking the chance of being knocked down at any moment, of falling on his back, of being pushed or perhaps elbowed. Jocelyn, a mulatto sailor who played at halfback, ended that way with an injection of Novocaine. He had a sprain and was carried off the field, but Flamengo could not play with just ten. Dr. Pais Barreto had no doubts. He gave him an injection of Novocaine. Jocelyn was not a young man. He was at the end of his career. He could last another two, maybe three years at the most. His old muscles burnt out were submitted to 45 minutes of effort. With a Novocaine injection, Jocelyn did not feel a thing. He felt good. He could run, kick, and be kicked back. He never again wore the Flamengo jersey. The doctors obeyed the rules of war. Instead of Pervitin, it was Novocaine. The private dressed up as a soccer player had to bear it until the end. Only if he broke his leg would he not return. Much younger than Jocelyn, Bigode spent most of a championship season without playing for the same reason. Fluminense was far ahead in the 1944 championship. They had defeated Vasco, which seemed to be the only other candidate. Since Flamengo had been sluggish and lost by five goals 
to Botafogo in General Severiano. Flamengo's opponent was América, the game in Álvaro Chávez. Bigode turned his back to Jorginho do Mora do Pinto and in a fraction of a second extended his right leg in an attempt to turn around. Jorginho do Mora do Pinto saw Bigode's leg extended with maximum muscular force and, acting quickly, he kicked him with the tip of his cleat in the back of his thigh. The floodlights illuminated the scene. The focus of the lights drew sparks from the massage oil on Bigode's thigh. The oily black man with the tense muscles were, was shining. Jorginho do Moro do Pinto managed, therefore, to choose the spot in which the tip of his cleats would make the maximum impact. Bigode fell down flat. It was a sprain. Dr. Hilton Gosling tried his best to lift him up. Bigode, when he touched his right foot to the lawn, collapsed. He was taken to the changing room. America was winning two to zero. If Bigode did not return, they could kiss the possibility of a comeback goodbye. And if he received a Novocaine injection, how much time would he need before returning? It was a serious decision that had to be made. And it had to be made quickly because the second half was about to begin. With Bigode, Fluminense could still win and maintain the distance that separated it from Vasco to further guarantee the title that no one denied was within their reach. Dr. Hilton Gosling opened an ampule of Novocaine, filled the syringe, and stuck it into Bigode's thigh right on the spot of the sprain. Shortly, the pain went away. Bigode got up, stumbling a bit as if he were drunk. He didn't know exactly what miracle drug had instantaneously stopped the excruciating pain of the sprain and went out onto the field. When he saw the very green lawn, the dark green of the foliage in a nativity scene, he flopped down on his stomach and began to cry. It was a scene to give one chills, that of Bigode dragging himself through the grass and crying, crying not about hearing himself, but about seeing himself from afar. The tears ran clearly like pure water across Bigode's face. The stadium became quiet, waiting, and Bigode got up in a jump and went out running. He knew what was expected of him. He never fought so much for a victory. He played in the back and went up front to score a goal. It was of no use at all. America two to one. Bigode did not play another game until the championship ended and Fluminense descended in the standings, defeat after defeat. From the top of the table, five points ahead of the second place team, it ended up way back, watching Flamengo become champion for the third time in a row. Brazil also lost a South American championship, that of 1945 in Chile, for a similar reason. The Brazilian attack was so good that Adamer, the big scorer, only found a spot as a left winger. 
Who could he possibly replace? Tesorinha? Zizinho? Heleno? Jair? Thus, the marvelous wing of Jair and Adamir. It seemed as if the moment awaited since 1939 had arrived. All Brazilian soccer needed was a victory over Argentina. Everything indicated that it would occur in the South American Championship in Chile. But Jaime de Almeida twisted his knee. There was Alfredo II, black as he was, who could take his place. Flavio Costa, however, could not conceive a Brazilian side without Jaime de Almeida. He had only one reservation about him. He played too cleanly. In the middle of the championship war with everything on the line, Jaime de Almeida was incapable of kicking anyone, of coming in hard to challenge for the ball, of stopping the player on the other team who was passing by him with either a block or a slide tackle, or even pulling him by the jersey or grabbing him by the shorts. Flavio Costa, sometimes a bit thrown off by the purity of Jaime de Almeida, would try to convince him not to be dirty, but to be hard. The ball would remain with the one who took it with more force, the one who approached with more vigor, the one who lifted his souls. There was no point. Jaime de Almeida had the air of a Gandhi playing soccer, taking to the extreme the principle of non-resistance. He was not blind enough not to see and to feel the war of the championship prophesied by Ondinho Vieira. More than once he felt it in his own flesh. They could kick him, and he would not retaliate. He would arrive in the changing room limping, and Flavio Costa would take advantage of the moment to lecture him. You see, it's no good being clean. One day they'll break you. Jaime de Almeida would not even respond. He was a tall, handsome black man with a round face full of health, exuding that good dignity of the soul that used to be seen in the movies in certain imposing black men, handpicked to play a butler of the Old South in the United States. One had only to close one's eyes and let one's fancy reign free to dress Jaime de Almeida as a butler in my old Kentucky home. He spoke softly with the drawling voice of someone from Minas Gerais. Everything in him evoked cleanliness, goodness, and loyalty. When wanting to cite a model player, a new Mimi Sodre, only one name graced everyone's lips, Jaime de Almeida. Flavio Costa hoped that one day Jaime de Almeida would open his eyes and see that soccer, worth two points, worth a title championship, did not allow for a Gandhi. It was the white man attempting to corrupt the black man, not to make him equal to other black men who would kick, to make him equal to blacks and whites too, who, when the going got tough, were equal. But so much did soccer, even that of the war of the championship, 
of Ondino Vieira allow for a Gandhi that Flavio Costa pliers, who in his days as a player, mediocre but already a leader, a commander of men, ordered all to play hard, could not do without a Jaime de Almeida, even with a sprained knee, despite the game being practically the most decisive of the South American championship in Chile. Jaime de Almeida should have submitted himself to an injection applied by Dr. Amilcar Gifoni. The pain had passed, but the sprain still made his movements difficult. In 10 minutes, Argentina scored three goals on him, and Jaime de Almeida left the field. In his place went the black Alfredo II, bouncy, skinny, and toothless. But it was too late. The dominance of the Brazilian side mattered little. The South American championship was lost. Nobody blamed Jaime de Almeida. He had come onto the field in a less-than-fit condition. He had been a sacrifice. The failure, instead of diminishing him, exalted him. If Flavio Costa could not get Jaime Almeida to retaliate with a kick, to block someone, to do a slide tackle, Flamengo could get him to sign an untrue letter absolving Big Ue. There had been a flaflu in Gavea, and Big Ua had either kicked Carcea, Careca or received a kick from Careca and was retaliating. Bigua was seen as an Indian. If not for his hair like that of a Japanese doll, he would have been seen as black. He was short and stocky with the thick legs of an armchair. But when his feet touched the ground, he bounced around like a tennis ball. When he got angry, he reminded one of those indigenous people in the poems of Goncalves Diaz, or better yet, an Apache or a Sioux of an American stripe, armed with a hatchet to scalp a pale face. This is what he did without the hatchet to Careca. He hit him with his arm. The referee, Waldemar Kidzinger, saw everything and wrote it on the score sheet for Bigua. It represented the threat of five or six games on the fence. He was an inveterate recidivist. He had seven punishments on his record, which would weigh in the balance. How to save him? Jose Bastinhos Moreira Bastos remembered Jaime de Almeida. If Jaime de Almeida were to write a letter to the Court of Sporting Justice of the Metropolitan Federation of Soccer, who knew? What worth would be the word of poor Waldemar Kidzinger compared to that of Jaime de Almeida? No one knows who drafted the letter, if it was Jose Bastinhos Moreira Bastos or Jose Alves de Moraes, who defended Bigua before the Court of Sporting Justice. It was a severe court, Martinho Garces Nieto, who presided over it, Saudi de Guzmao, Henrique Barbosa, Silvio Neto Machado, Alvaro Ramos Noguera, Angelo Bergamini, and Renato Pacheco Marquez, who was the arbitrator. 
Renato Pacheco Marquez was a police officer in the state of Rio, quite a fierce animal. When it came down to confronting gangsters, he was implacable. In the court of sporting justice, he was the most feared by the clubs because when he saw a player accused of aggression, he remembered that he was a police officer and that it was necessary to repress delinquency on the soccer fields. The minimum punishment that he requested in the cases was six games. But there was a letter of Jaime de Almeida, and though accustomed to dealing with criminals with heartless men, when he read beneath the type letter the name of Jaime de Almeida, Renato Pacheco Marquez was moved. If Jaime de Almeida, my dignified colleagues, says that Biwa did not attack Careca, then we all have the irrefutable obligation, the sacred duty of not doubting him, because if there is a clean, immaculate player, if there is a loyal player, incapable of the least foul, if there is an example in Brazilian soccer of fair play, that example is Jaime de Almeida. Renato Pacheco Marquez read aloud the letter signed by Jaime de Almeida, who was not even in Rio, who had embarked on a tour with Flamengo, who perhaps had signed it without reading it at the time of departure, someone telling him, this is to save Bigua from suspension, and the judges of the Court of Sporting Justice of the Metropolitan Federation of Soccer drank in the words of Jaime de Almeida through the voice of Renato Pacheco Marquez. Seated at the end of the long table in the hall of the presidency, Jose Bastinhos Moreira Bastos and Jose Alves de Moraes were more than grave. The moment was solemn. Jaime de Almeida's word was at stake, or the purity of Jaime de Almeida, which Flamengo made a point of preserving. Everything turned out right. Every judge on the Court of Sporting Justice of the Metropolitan Federation of Soccer did not want to miss the opportunity, rare on any court, of exalting the best human qualities that were gathered together even in the middle of the war of the championship in a good black man called Jaime de Almeida. Bigua received only a fine of 300 cuzieros for rough play, of which, due to omission, Jaime de Almeida's letter did not absolve him. Chapter 5, Part 6 Flavio Costa did not want to pervert Jaime de Almeida when he asked him to challenge hard, to knock down the player on the other team who passed by him or to stop him, pulling him by the jersey or grabbing him by the shorts. Not even Jose Bastinhos Moreira Bastos and Jose Alves de Moraes, when drafting a defense of Biwa, although altering the truth. What they all wanted was the good of Flamengo. When Botafogo gave an Austin car second hand to Luis Paulo Tovar, a pure amateur, it was not to pay him for the effort of a player on the field. It was a Brazilian way of paying someone back 
who had not charged anything, paying someone who had refused to receive in the name of everyone receiving. There is nothing more difficult than to pay someone back in this way. There was, however, a second sense being the present from Botafogo, or rather from the members of Botafogo. If it were the club, Luis Paulo Tovar might actually think it was a payment. The idea behind the gift came from Adamar Bebiano upon finding out that Luis Paulo Tovar was crazy to drive a car. It had been something that Jair Tovar, father of Luis Paulo, let slip. Adamar Bebiano said, well, he will have a car then. Nelson Sintra took it upon himself to collect signatures for a subscription. The list went from hand to hand, and shortly they had the money to buy an Austin. It had to be second-hand because there were no new cars at the lot. Joao Saldanha unveiled the pure intention. They were paying homage to Luis Paulo Tovar, who was going to graduate in medicine and, who knows, might still play a bit more for Botafogo. What money cannot achieve, when it cannot hide its condition as money, a little effort can bring about by transforming money into something irresistible, be it an armful of roses, a jewel, or, in the case of Luis Paulo Tovar, an Austin. Botafogo did not ask for anything. They gave from the desire to give. And exactly when Tovar announced that he was not going to play anymore. After Tovar graduated, they even did more. They launched a medical department for him to direct. Thus, they managed to get Tovar to play a few more games. It was difficult to deal with a pure amateur in that era. Above all, an incorruptible one, because if he were corruptible, he would be corrupted quickly. At the very least, he would sign a contract, even under the pretext, highly laudable, of paying for his studies. But Luis Paulo Tovar was the son of Jair Tovar, who was a federal deputy from Espirito Santo and a government secretary. Botafogo soon gave him a director's position, legal director. Unabashedly, they were surrounding Tovar from all sides. When Tovar was not brought into the Brazilian side that competed in the South American Championship in Chile, not even in the game against Bolivia, which Brazil won by nine, Botafogo was offended. Although the starter was Zizinho, considered the greatest Brazilian player of the era. When the side returned, Botafogo made a point of repairing the insult to Tovar by giving him the title of Emeritus Member. The gift of the Austin to Tovar irritated Heleno de Freitas more than the title of Emeritus Member. He was a professional. He charged a lot, but he belonged to one of the best families of Rio. As an aristocrat, he judged himself to hold rights if not greater than at least equal to those of Tovar. He taught manners even to the directors of Botafogo. They were bosses in the club of General Severiano who, before Heleno, felt themselves badly dressed, 
and socially inferior. Heleno de Freitas had to buy a car. Botafogo had contradictory attitudes toward him. They wanted to give him everything or nothing. The elegance of Heleno at headquarters in a social gathering would disappear on the field. He was schizophrenic. Nobody knew it, not even Heleno. They called him temperamental. Soccer was what gave him balance. When Botafogo was winning, he was the embodiment of mental sanity. But if a game went awry for Botafogo, it was enough for Helena to turn against his teammates. He would not respect anyone. When the game was over, or even the first half, there would be players on Botafogo who wanted to hit him. On one occasion, Augusto Federico Schmidt had to hug Otavio in order to avoid a bloody scene. Because Otavio went after Heleno as if he were ready to kill him. For this reason, Botafogo saved its adulation for Tovar and not Heleno. Not even for Emelendo Matarazzo, a multimillionaire who played in goal for the second team. He was a good goalie, courageous, apt to flatten everyone to save a goal. His fortune, however, made him worthy of suspicion. The fans saw a Matarazzo, a real Matarazzo, son of a count, heir of United Industries, and concluded that what Botafogo really wanted was to become his inheritor. And it put a flea behind the ear of Botafogo fans the way that, almost suicidally, the black players on the second team, beginning with Marinho and Orlando Maia, the backs would defend the citadel of Ermelindo Matarazzo. Ermelindo Matarazzo was beneath the three bars to defend, to get his balls, to show that he was the keeper. Marinho and Orlando Maia did everything humanly possible to avoid this, to keep any ball from arriving at Ermelindo Matarazzo's goal. What if one that arrived went in? Once in a while, a ball would get through. It was the big moment of Ermelindo Matarazzo. He would throw himself and hug the ball. Marinho and Orlando Maia would breathe sighs of relief. It was not that they didn't trust Ermelindo Matarazzo. He was a good goalie, but he was also a man marked by money. If he fenced a chicken, not even all the Matarazzo's fortune would save Ermelindo from the ire of the Botafogo fans. That was what the black men of the second team wished to avoid at all costs. Also, after a victory of the reserves, Ermelindo Matarazzo would open the doors of his Atlantica Avenue apartment to celebrate. He would invite only his teammates, the players of the second team. Sometimes he would make an exception for Geninho, the fixer, Efigenio Bajiens, who was a mulatto with a big head, the brown eminence of Botafogo, soccer. Like a good Miniedho, he knew how to form groups, to carry out political machinations. A kind of Benedito Valadares, 
when someone went to go count votes or opinions, the majority would be with Janine Ho. Many a snake from the first team would give anything to go to a reception at Ermelindo Matarazzo's apartment. French champagne flowing like a waterfall, the waiters coming and going, guessing the thoughts of the guests. Marinho and Orlando Maia would be like figureheads, ambassadors of an African country whose name it would be impolite to ask. And Ermelindo Matarazzo was calm, the great lord, as if in every game of the second team of Botafogo he was not risking his life or something more precious. Was it the security of the rich man? No, because he knew that the money would never let him, however much he grabbed, play for the first team. It was more the desire to live perilously that made him zoom around on a motorcycle and darn it if he wasn't looking for a crash into a post, into a wall, or flying onto a curb, something that happened to him more than once. He smashed motorcycles, cars, boats, defying fate. What could happen to him? Death at most. Other goalkeepers could not think this way. They played to earn a living. Although what made them play soccer the most was the love of the ball. For the little beast of Jaguare, the girl, as the more tender-hearted crack players started to call it, the young lady, the girlfriend. Only in this light can one understand what happened with Moser Barbosa when he debuted on the Brazilian side. Flavio Costa had seen him play and soon classified him as the greatest goalkeeper of Brazil. Oberdan was old, Batatais was finished, Luis Boracha had attacks of the shakes. After a game, like the Flamengo versus Vasco match of 1944, he would take himself off to sob in the changing room. Flavia Costa started Mosier Barbosa, practically an unknown. In Sao Paulo, he was spoken of. In Rio, no one had ever heard of him. It was the first of a best of three against Argentina in the 1945 Copa Roca at the end of the year. Brazilian soccer was preparing to avenge itself for 1939. In Santiago de Chile, with 10 minutes left, Oberdan had swallowed three goals, shot from Mendes who, according to Flavio Costa, did not even know how to walk. It was true that Jaime de Almeida had come onto the field with a sprained knee. Mendes was beating Jaime de Amelda, who could not turn around and bang the ball in. Moacir Barbosa comes in beneath the three bars of Brazil in Pacambu Stadium and takes a goal, gets scared, then swallows another. He had to change his shorts. While he changed his shorts, old Oberdan replaced him. For many people, Moacir Barbosa was irredeemably condemned. How could one put a keeper in Brazil's goal who could not stand a rocket? Who might have to change his shorts after a goal? 
There were those who, claiming soccer erudition, recalled that the position of goalkeeper, until proven otherwise, was more for white players, for Marcos de Mendonca, Ferreira, Kuntz, Nestor, Geraldo, Tuffy, Amado, Joel de Oliveira, Montiero, Batatais, Tandu, Voltaire Goulart, and Oberdan. The mulatto and black goalkeepers were generally street urchins, as in the case of Dionisio, who defended with his head, and of Jagare Bezera de Vasconcelos, who, after a defensive play, would shoot the ball at the feet of those who had shot or at the head of those who had headed. When they played seriously, like a Nelson da Conceição, they were subject to corruption. Or then, like Balthazar Franco, who, to show that blacks were good in goal, risked himself too much, even offering his head to be kicked. There remained the lackadaisical ones, like Osvaldo, the post, who liked to read comic books during practice, sticking the magazine on a hook in the goal and, at times, would let a ball pass, as if his thoughts were far away. And the emotional ones like Luis, Boracha, who would come to tears, or those like Morsier Barbosa, who had to change his shorts. The white man was better. Oberdan finished the game, in the place of the young Barbosa, being rung like a bell. The game was lost. Argentina won 4-3. to three. But in the rematch in Sao Januario, Brazil unburdened itself. It returned the 5-1 to one of 1939 with a 6-2. to two. And in that decision, Vaca was kept out. Like another Barbosa and the Argentinian keeper Ogando, almost a boy, was obliged to bat away in defensive saves. 24 balls for corner kicks in one half. Greater control of a game had never been seen in soccer. Argentina, however, had come to play in the Copa Rocha after guaranteeing Brazil's presence in the extra South American Championship Games of Buenos Aires in January 1946. Before the decisive match, Batagliero, who had broken his leg in an accidental collision with Adamer, paraded around the running track of the River Plate Stadium in a wheelchair, the white of his cast on a clear display to incite the crowd. When Solomon, the Argentine back, went after Jair, Jair just waited for him with his soul up. Solomon ended up flat on his back, his leg broken. This was the signal to begin a hunt of the Brazilian players. Zeze Procopio, who was hiding a knife in his sock, made a kind of barricade, showing his blade, which shone in the sun. Instead of hiding behind Zeze Procopio, Chico ran away, and after him came the Argentinian police and the kids who had jumped the trench. A soldier put his foot in front of Chico, who tripped and fell. He was carried to the changing room, unconscious, in a state of shock. Ciro Aranha then announced that Brazil would not return to the field. The re 
ply of the Argentinian directors was that if Brazil did not continue the game, they could not offer the minimum guarantee of the safety of the Brazilian players nor to the Brazilian bigwigs. The crowd had been in River Plate Stadium since seven o'clock in the morning. There were no police who would contain them. And the Brazilian side had to return to the field in order to lose the game that it had dominated until then. Who could think of a victory in that concentration camp that the River Plate lawn had become? The cannons no longer sounded in the fields of Europe, Africa, and Asia. The last vestige of World War had been snuffed out in the atomic dawn that illuminated Hiroshima for the last time. Here in the happy continent, where no bomb had fallen, we were still playing at war in soccer. The one who wanted peace was Odinho Vieira. He could not stand three years of tension. That was the period he had requested to form a squadron and win the championship. The scariest thing was that Odinho Vieira, the fraud, as Jose Linz do Rego had called him, offending all of Vasco, had his collapse after reaching complete success. No general had drawn up a plan for victory with more mathematical precision. The squadron of Vasco was almost the Brazilian side. One year early, according to the pre-established plans, he had nearly achieved the objective of the title. On the correct date, however, Odinho Vieira made Vasco champions. But he was more than worn out. He was frightened. That weapon that he had forged and that had made Vasco into the greatest Brazilian soccer power was alarming Odinho Vieira instead of calming him. He knew how he had been able to form the Vasco squadron, the so-called Victory Express, by constantly demanding more, never satisfied with what he had. Unleashing a war of nerves in Sao Januario to get more, more, and more. He saw enemies everywhere, powerful enemies, capable of destroying the Vasco squadron. He believed in ghosts, not ghosts in sheets, but the ghosts of flesh and blood, capable of whispering to players, of putting fear into them through the radio and the press. As a champion, Odinho Vieira was a defeated man. He felt himself without the slightest guarantee. Vasco had a side, but it was not enough to have a side to win a championship. And if he lost with that side, it had been Odinho Vieira, who had announced, prophetically, that horrors of the championship as a war. The war had not ended. When would it end? Odinho Vieira began to wish for peace. He would not have it with Vasco, the champion, now the target of all the others, the great enemy. Just imagining what the others would do so that Vasco did not become a repeat champion, Odina Vieira gave up. It was something nobody understood at Sao Januario. What more did Odina Vieira want? Vasco did everything humanly possible for Odino Vieira to stay. There was no way. Odina Vieira seemed to predict that Vasco would not be champion again. Certainly, he had studied the history of Vasco. Vasco had never been a repeat champion. A title instead of strengthening them 
weaken them. It is an explanation for the desertion of Odina Vieira. Flavio Costa would do the same with Flamengo, leaving them for Vasco. The squadron of Flamengo, after three consecutive titles, was finished. The path of victory was that of Sao Januario. Odinho Vieira moved on to Botafogo and lasted one championship, and then came his nostalgia for Fluminense, which he had left like Flavio Costa had left Flamengo. When the great team of Alvaro Chavez had emptied out after winning championships in six years, Fluminense had sent Gentile Cardoso away and given the nod to Odino Vieira. And so Odino Vieira came back, a pacifist. Certain examples only Fluminense could give. One of them was the game with Southampton. Southampton was an English club in the second division. This was a detail that the press and radio announcers made a point of ignoring. It was English, and that was enough. Deep down, the ones who Brazilians really admired were the English. Perhaps it was because of a weakness for the old times of colonialism from which they had not yet freed themselves. Nothing truer than that old adage, for the Englishman to see. What we did best was for the Englishman to see. In soccer, we deluded ourselves with an exaggerated admiration for the Argentine. It was a way for us to pay for the massacre of the 1939 Copa Roca. Context of white supremacy. Inching our way to the conclusion of the text. I think we should be all done, I say three, I think three sessions, just looking at where we are. For me, we're on 258, so hmm, 70 pages or so left to go. I'll say three and we should be done. And Pele to come. Uh, Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. Number to dial, 605-313-5164. The code, 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. They mentioned. The Philo, he mentions, I don't know, the song, movie, My Old Kentucky Home, as he was moving through the second portion. This is from the Washington Post, although this is talked about a lot. Uh, Pause, I guess, for Breonna Taylor. Washington Post, 2022, just last spring. My Old Kentucky Home, Kentucky Derby Anthem has racist past. Emily Bingham grew up in Louisville a few miles from Churchill Downs where the annual Kentucky Derby horse race is held each year on the first Saturday in May coming up next month. She patriotically sang My Old Kentucky Home at her family's derby parties. Her dad regaled her with the story of his time as a young Marine stationed in Japan when he came upon a group of Japanese children 
singing the melody. So when Bingham declares that my old Kentucky home, sung by the Derby every year by 150,000 spectators, met juleps in hand and tears in their eyes, is racist and phony, she isn't saying this as some judgmental outsider of dispassionate academic. She has more Kentucky bona fides than the guy who wrote the song 169 years ago. In an unsparing new book, My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song, Bingham, a historian at Bellarmine University, details the song's long, strange history and the way it is both twisted and been twisted by American memory. Oh, you want to hear some of the? Yes, you do. Okay, so the lyrics. Uh, the sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home. Tis summer. The people are gay. The corn tops ripe and the meadows in the bloom while the birds make music all the day. The young folks roll on the little cabin floor, all merry, all happy and bright. By and by, hard times come a knocking at the door. Then my old Kentucky home. Good night. Weep no more, my lady. Oh, weep no more today. We will sing one song for the old Kentucky home, for the old Kentucky home far away. It sounds innocuous enough, but that's just the latest iteration. In place of people, there used to be a racist slur for black people. You don't think they meant Negro? Evoking old stereotypes of happy slaves in the fields. Fans stopped seeing the slur at the Derby in 1967, and Kentucky didn't officially change it in the state song until 1986. It goes on to give more detail, but I've heard this not just from the recent talk, certainly when Breonna Taylor happened, they talked about this a lot, but. This is mentioned specifically. This is why I learned what the word bolderized meant. And you just heard it. That's it right there where the song used to talk about our happy niggers and they just switched that out and put people in. That is how you bolderize racist content. But now again, think about that. What was my, my $15 phrase? transnational white supremacy overlap so we got the lynching we got a clan reference and then he drops my old Kentucky home song or movie the movie of this came out I believe in the 1930s so let me in fact let me strive for accuracy 1938 right at the beginning of the so-called World War II. You need another movie for this time period. Notorious. This is an Alfred Hitchcock classic. If we got film buffs out there and you got to watch something on TV, got two now. So you can watch My Old Kentucky Home and then Notorious. Oh, I got three because I mentioned Patton already today and that is a really good one. Uh, Notorious 1946. Alfred Hitchcock film what is it about film follows US government agent T.R. Devlin played by Cary Grant who enlists the help of Alicia Huberman played by Ingrid Bergman who is in Neely Fuller's classic which is also a World War II film Casablanca White House Uh, the daughter of a German war criminal 
to infiltrate a circle of executives of IG Farben hiding out. Where would they hide out at? Why would I mention it now? Hiding out in Rio de Janeiro after World War II. Now you got three films. Oh my goodness. And this film in 2006 was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant Nazis hiding in Rio. You don't say. Patton, notorious, my old Kentucky home. There you go. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in with the hand up commentary you wanted to share. Second portion of the reading. Just May thinking. I be heard? There's Lauren. Yes, ma'am. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Um, I... I Googled, I was trying to figure out if players had actually been lynched because I remembered, oh, I'm having a hard time thinking of the player's name, but um, he was a black fellow and he wasn't allowed to hit anyone back when they assaulted him on the field. And um, Mr. Philo made a remark like, if he kicked someone back, they'd come out there and lynch him. And so I was thinking about that. Anyway, so I Googled to see, you know, if any Brazilian soccer players had been lynched, and I was expecting to find something in the early 1900s. Apparently, um, well, the last one I found was 2013. I didn't even get back to the 1900s um, because, uh, yeah, it happened in 2013, and apparently lynching is not um, against the law. It's not illegal. So there's still lots of lynchings going on in Brazil. Um, I didn't know that. Um, uh, in, in the book, they were talking about um, his name, uh, Juan, hold on, Octavio, oh, no, wait, wait, sorry, Jaime de Almeida. Um, I guess, you know, you were thinking about him when you were talking about my old Kentucky home. But, you know, but he came up and he said, you know, he um, he wouldn't kick people or, or whatever. He wouldn't respond. He was a tall, handsome man with a round face full of health, exuding that good dignity of soul. That word soul came up several times in this segment that used to be seen in the movies and certain imposing black men handpicked to play a butler of the old South in the United States. One had only to close one's eyes and let one's fancy reign free to dress Jaime de Almeida as a butler in my old Kentucky home. Wow. Um, you know, Mr. Philo is just letting us know what he's thinking. And there were racist thoughts. Um, that part really stood out for me. Uh, another part when um. It, it seemed like a white man. I Googled it. He looked like a white man. His name was uh, Luis Paulo Tovan. I think that's what it was. But anyway, they gave him a car. And it just seems like they keep giving the white players cars willy-nilly in here. And the black people are really um, having a hard time eating and getting medical 
care and all sorts of things. Um, oh, and, and back to that Jaime de Almeida, they didn't like that he seemed to be an honest player. So they got him to sign that letter that was a lie, in effect, making him into a liar. I thought that was super incorrect, and that's all I have for now. Much obliged. Lauren uh, Leonidas is one of the players that they talk about lynching directly. Uh, if he, you know, acts like he's going to misbehave on the field. But I think they mentioned a few black players where, hey, no fighting back. All the, I'm not even talking about the guy they compared to Gandhi this week. Just we've heard that repeatedly. But Leonidas going to be lynched. Uh, let's see. Much obliged. Lauren lynchings very common in Brazil, even to this day. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Yes, sir. May I be heard? Two two six two. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Sorry, I'm having trouble connecting to the internet. It looks like it's routing every device. Sorry. That guy's name was Gradom. Yes, yeah, sorry about that, sir. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll just say uh, briefly. Um, they said brought the Novocaine used to help the players with pain. I was comparing that to the um, the drinks, the Kashaka, I believe, or the sugarcane rum they used to drink before games. Um, and also what the caller brought up about the uh, Jaime de la Meta, uh, the Butler reference, I also thought was interesting. Um, uh, real briefly about the uh, about one of the players. His name is Biegua, and they said look like a, a Indian with dark Japanese hair and um, or uh, Japanese doll hair. I'm sorry. Um, um, if not for the hair, he'd be black. Um, that was an interesting statement about him. And also, uh, his name, I looked his name up, uh, it's translated to a cormorant. It's some type of bird with dark plumage and short legs. Um, and at the very end, on page 258, uh, they said they admired the English and stuff like that. And I'm going to try that true that is because they sided with the axis. But that will be all for now. Thank you so much for taking my call. Much obliged. 2262. I think we got uh, Lauren even went back to check. Gradom, one of the other players who was threatened. I said it was a few players who were, you know, threatened. We will lynch and beat you and all the rest if you don't get out there and fighting back and all that good stuff. Uh, let's see. Uh, we get to written notes and then we'll get folks who dialed in as well. Let's see. <clears throat> One of an investor who wrote in portion, where do we leave off at? Number number 10, I think. Nope, back up a little bit, back up a little bit. There we go, number 8. Number 8, page 247, Perlo, testicular inflammation, Novocaine injection, Bria, got a tumor in his back. Uh, Novocaine injection instead of pervitin. 
performance enhancing drugs performance and enha- uh, apparently have a long history in sports i would think especially for individuals classified as black like oh yeah get on out there and you know do it to it uh number nine page 250 jamie de almeida heir of gandhi extreme principle of non-resistance tall handsome black man good dignity of the soul seen even in movies butler of the old south close your eyes let one's fancy reign free butler in my old kentucky home evoked cleanliness goodness loyalty uh this is an astounding passage Bilo confirms that brazilian racist white supremacists had an intimate knowledge of both anti-racist efforts worldwide gandhi and an intimate knowledge of u.s slave culture proof positive that racist white supremacists share tactics confirming the global nature of racism white supremacy they didn't even have netflix and they've seen all this stuff number 10 page 251 bigua indian if not his hair like that of a japanese doll he would have been seen as black when he got angry apache or sioux of american stripe using a hatchet to scalp a pale face Philo seems very familiar with the symbols of racism, white supremacy in the U.S. Tell me about it now. I wasn't going to play this, but just because he brought up a hatchet. Let me get hatchet for two times. Outside a preschool in Blumenau in southern Brazil, parents consoled each other after a fatal attack at the school. Police allege a 25-year-old man wielding an axe gained access to the private school by scaling its walls. He has since been arrested. Among the victims sit a firefighter, are three boys and a girl between the ages of five and seven. Of the injured, one of them was listed in serious condition, he said. The injured are between the ages of three and five, a local hospital said. President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva described the attack as a monstrosity on social media. Community members living near the preschool came to lay flowers and pay their respects to the young victims. We live here in the region. We have children studying at schools near the kindergarten, and we put ourselves in their shoes. They could have been our children, too. I hope that everyone comes here to bring some support. It's not an easy situation. It's quite difficult. The attack comes nearly a week after a 13-year-old student stabbed a teacher to death and injured five others in Sao Paulo. The Paulistas, that was where the stabbing happened last week because they live in Sao Paulo, see, Paulistas. So that hatchet axe attack happened this week in Brazil. That's one week after they had the attack in Brazil teacher got stabbed to death and this is the second hatchet and depending on which news reports you look at some of them say axe some of them say hatchet if you want to split hairs metaphor last month and i believe it was on february 14th put that in your valentine's basket uh a white brazilian teenager attacked a school he had molotov cocktails a hatchet all that what is going on in Brazil? Anyway, uh, pale face with hatchet. Yes, that's what we left off at. Uh, next, it says... Mm-hmm. 
number 11. Renato Pachillo Marquez, police officer, fierce animal, confronting gangsters. Minimum punishment, six games. The global system of racism, white supremacy requires its overseers in all areas of people activity. Uh, let's see, number 12, page 253 to 254. Heleno de Fritas by a car, schizophrenic, temperamental. He was born in a rich Brazilian family known as a womanizer, gambler, drug addict, died of syphilis at age 39 in 1959. I'm not sure of his racial classification, but I suspect he was classified as white. Dang, what kind of... Hmm. Uh, live fast, die young. Number 13, 254. Once in a while, a ball would get through, fenced a chicken. Ire a Botafogo fans. The black men of the second team wish to avoid. If you are a black goalie, you better be perfect. I think that remains the case even today. Uh, goalkeepers, more for white players. Mulatto and black goalkeepers were generally street urchins. Uh, played seriously subject to corruption. The goalkeeper is such a pivotal position in soccer, it is not surprising that non-white players would be looked upon as inferior compared to white players. Reminds one a little of the issues surrounding black quarterbacks in the NFL. Mm, 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 Disgraceful. Uh, Let's see. The number 15. Fluminense were champions in 1946. Not thriving. They were out of shape. English fathers. Oh, we didn't get that far. Can get that far. Stop right there. Let's see. Uh, let's see. I'll get some of my notes in, and then we can get ready to wrap. Let me see. Kind of go back. All righty. A little bit further. Oh, went too far. Too far. Get back up to 5.6. I think that's about where we started at for the second audio segment. Uh, so I got the film part of it. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. Rio Sapal. Zeze Prakipand. Got that. Stocky got that. I made coffee. That one. Oh, okay. One example was Perillo, who had entered the field in Vasco versus Flamingo final with a testicular inflammation. Now that one TMI for sure on all the drugs and everything but I mean in a book that is literally brimming. I'll put it this way all the people out there we're inundated with sports and all this any of you, you can write in all the rest, any of you, have you ever in sports heard of the dreaded ailment testicular inflammation? Really? really okay uh, Jocelyn a mulatto sailor who played at halfback ended that way with an injection of Novocaine all of this we already talked about that you got to go through all these drugs and non-white players you got to go through my testicular inflammation for this white ball game like really is that serious he talked about the player before who had uh, TB endangered the whole team to go out and play like really Come on. Let's see. Jorgino DeMoro DePinto saw Bigado's leg extended with maximum muscular force. 
Bigode's leg is black. Oh, it's black. He's black. His leg would be black too then. And acting quickly, he kicked him in the tip with the tip of his cleats in the back of his thigh. The floodlights illuminated the scene. The focus of the lights drew sparks from a massage oil on Bigode's thigh. The oily black man with the tense muscles was shining again, <laughs> brimming with homoeroticism. And again, I mean, I thought sportsmanship and soccer is not even supposed to be contact. And I'm not even making soccer plays. We're going out. I'm going to kick this nigger as hard as I possibly can with the tip of my cleat. Kill him if I can. Like, or is that not, or is that in the rule book? Or is that in the strategy page? They don't even do that in tackle football. Let's see. And then they go stick him with more drugs, more drugs, more drugs. Uh, let's see. Oh, I love this phrase. He says, Jamie de Almeida twisted his knee. There was Alfredo too, black as he was, who could take his place. Like, are you like what? <laughs> like, do they say that? And I've heard that in English. Black as you is. going in here? Black as you are. <laughs> do, they, do they say that for anybody? Coming in here, white as you are pale as you are, chalky as you are. Let's see. Jaime de Almeida was incapable of kicking anyone, of coming to any hard challenge for the ball, of stopping the player. Uh, he's the Gandhi of football. That would be something to brag about, like sportsmanship. Play the game the right way. Ah, gotta play it the white man's way. Play to win. Swore. Uh, let's see. Tall, handsome black man with a round face full of health, exuding that good dignity. Like, what? again, all of this is what? And even this guy, to me, he says he's tall and good looking. You know, he looks like you could be the butler on a plantation. You know that movie I saw back in Kentucky about, you know what I'm talking about? Like, <laughs> what? What? Theory, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., theory of incapability apparently anywhere in the world negras slaves that's all you are doesn't matter butler slave street urchin that's about the size of it tall well-dressed well-spoken articulate mm, butler chef dog catcher cotton picker <laughs> Dang, that's that's all go to brazil and they say same thing South Africa, same thing. England, same thing. <sighs> he says, Jaime de Almeida would open his eyes and see that soccer were two points worth. A title of champion did not allow for a Gandhi. It was the white man attempting to corrupt the black. That, wow. Wow. <laughs> like, I feel like that happens frequently in the system of white supremacy racism uh, that is racist white supremacists not encouraging us to practice justice but something corrupt that will ultimately benefit racist man racist woman um, he says and then he comes back to to and it's first it was Alfredo the second black as he was the next time around is 10 minutes and Archina scored three goals Argentina scored three goals on him, and Jaime de Almeida left the field. In his place went the black Alfredo II, bouncy, 
skinny, toothless. Like, God, does this guy owe you money? Did his family do something? <laughs> like, man. Every minute, can't just say the elevator. Second, he came out. He said, no, 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 no. Black, toothless, extra black. We got real black, super black. <laughs> Not pretend. Like, man. We got it. We got it. We got it. Uh, let's see. Bigua was seen to love this. If not for his hair like that of a Japanese doll, he would have been seen as black, short, stocky, thick leg. I mean, th- what is all of this other than what? I don't even gawk like this looking at, I don't know, cheerleaders or something like what? What is all of this? And then. The emasculation, I say primarily of non-white, non-black players, he compares him to a Japanese doll. And the black males, they're beasts, see? They're animals and dangerous and criminals and slippery and all the rest of it. The non they're dandies, you know. Got the foot of a lady, like a little Japanese doll, you know. None of this is, all this is racism, white supremacy. I'm just pointing out distinctions. Uh, let's see. And then at the same time, he says, when he gets out on the field, oh, boy, he's going to get his hatchet and scalp somebody just like that Brazilian teenager did this week at the daycare. Let's see. Anything else need to get in this week? The black gold keepers are unreliable and treacherous, and, you know, you can't have them back there anyway. They're generally street, uh, that's whole book, this ne- street urchins with kinky hair. That would be even better. Because there's whole lots of street urchins. Street urchins and then street urchins and street urchins. They are Negroes, eventual rapists once they get big enough. But street urchins with kinky hair. Let's see. He even said, when they played seriously like a Nelson de Conseo, they were subject to corruption. Talking about black goalkeepers or like Baltazar Franco, who, to show the blacks were good in goal, risked himself too much, even offering his head to be kicked. There remained the lackadaisical ones like Osvaldo, like all of this lazy nigra. That's my word, though. I do say uh, lackadaisical. I, that's right up there with uh, meander. Love those. But lackadaisical? And it, what is, what's that in Portuguese? Lackadaisical. Come on. Come on. Shiftless niggers worldwide. Okay, so we're shiftless, and then if we're not shiftless, the best that we can hope for is that we're so ignorant and willing to please whitey, English whitey, Portuguese whitey, Brazilian whitey, Argentinian whitey, whitey whitey. I will put my head down to be kicked. You see, I'm loyal. I'm a good nigger. I'm a good nigger. Go on, kick my head. I'll live through it. Are you serious? Now I don't even know if that's true. He could have just put that in because that sounds like some my old Kentucky home, you know, Uncle Tom cabin type thing. Uh, or those like Mokar Barbosa who had to change his shorts. The nigger is so shiftless and cowardly. He poos himself out on the field. Look at this. That's not a man. What kind of man is that? Mess your shorts out on the soccer field. Really? Really? Anyway, um, I think I can leave that. Anything else? Got the cannons. All for the Englishman to see us. The reverence for the white Englishman. And which 
love the caller pointing out, I thought they fought on the access side. If they were really that in love with white Englishmen, why didn't they join the Allies and get rid of Hitler? No, 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 no. Mussolini and Hitler. They got whole books about Mussolini, Hitler, white supremacy, and soccer. Lots of books on Hitler, Mussolini, white supremacy, and soccer. It just depends on how much you want to read about this. Three weeks left, I think. I'll see if I can watch my old Kentucky home before next week. Much obliged for the folks who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Learn a little bit about everything. What he said, sobriety would be best two times. That includes includes the prescription medication. We got to shoot you up with this. You can get out there, play pickleball. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring no street urchins no negro street urchins in 2023 cow signing out thanks all for tuning in invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com hit the blog paypal button in the top right corner you'll see the links venmo cash app paypal listener supported counter racist radio 14 years cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.